This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I feel like we were in this position just a week ago. Well, I guess we were. Uh, last week, because of Thanksgiving, I took off Friday. And it's very rare. I can't remember the last time I took off two Fridays in a row. I, I may never have happened. But uh, I will not be here for tomorrow's show because I am off to Mexico for my brother-in-law Adam's wedding. So uh, I figured we would do some of our popular Friday segments, including denunciations and including... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. anything. That's right. I am prepared to handle your questions on any subject. Doesn't mean I will be able to come up with a good answer, but I'll at least give it the old college try. Doesn't mean... I will, um, you know, answer every single question you have. You get a little too personal. I may not answer it, but I'm going to I think if you've listened to this segment long enough, you know that uh, I make a good faith effort to answer anything. Uh, One of the things that people occasionally take issue with, and I don't blame them for being frustrated, is people tend to give a long wind up before a question. Questions are things that begin with what, who, where, does, do, why. You don't start by giving your opinion that lasts five minutes and then not even making clear what your question is. So please get to your question right right away. That's all we ask. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. One of the shows that uh, I became really taken with this year is a show called Ted Lasso. And there's one episode of Ted Lasso in season two, which is kind of a one off and uh, meaning it's not necessarily tied to anything else that happens in the series. It's called Beard After Hours. And it's sort of an homage to a lot of great nighttime films, including a great Scorsese film. But there is one portion of that episode where they really encapsulate more than anything the idea behind Ask Frank Anything. Have you ever been to Vegas? What's Ted like behind closed doors? How do you cope knowing the universe is infinite, but your consciousness can end in a second? I've been to Vegas many times. One night is good. Two nights is perfect. Three is too many. Ted is a man. Just a man. And as for the fragility of life, I'm so glad someone finally asked. Because, yeah, I got a few thoughts. And so, in conclusion, if this is all indeed a simulation, which everything in my experience suggests that it is, then all we can do is tip our caps to the rascal pulling the strings. So, basically, those are the kind of questions that we're prepared to tackle, meaning whatever you can come up with. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hi, Frank. Hi. Yesterday, Brian Kilmey went after Anthony Blinken uh, with a vengeance on the interview on Fox and Friends. I was wondering, have you ever interviewed somebody and constantly called them out on BS answers? 
Uh, you know, honestly, I try not to do that because um, my view and look, maybe this is why Bill O'Reilly has achieved a certain level of success as an interviewer and I haven't. But my view is if I'm uh, inviting someone on the show, I genuinely want to hear their answers. And there have been instances like when I was interviewing General McInerney yesterday, he said a couple of things that uh, I don't think he was lying, but they were factually untrue. But he he was he didn't stop for me to correct him and then ask something else. He just would filibuster. Uh, th- th- I've had that with a number of guests. The only time that I can remember that happening is when I had that guy on who went on and on about Sandy Hook being a um, Sandy Hook being staged. Uh, now maybe I could be better at that. But my view is I've got four hours to give my opinion on a wide variety of things. And that if I'm inviting a guest on, you should at least have the courtesy to ask questions. I wish when I have a guest on, they wouldn't filibuster. And when I've tried to be a guest on other shows, you try and give substantive answers without lecturing or without filibustering. But uh, it's not really my style. It's not really my style. Maybe I'll uh, maybe we'll ask Brian about that. He's coming up in about three hours. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking with him later. We uh, were not together last week because of Thanksgiving or the previous week because he had a Fox event. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Paul in the Bronx. Hello, Paul. Hi, would you ever consider interviewing uh, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas? Sure, I've interviewed James many times, and uh, he actually has he dedicated one of his books to me. And then in another one of his books, he I think the book the second book is American Pravda. In uh, another one of his books, he tells a cheerful anecdote about listening to me on the radio early in the morning. I talk to James all the time. Uh, James is not really one for the late night hours. He is uh, more of a conventional guy. But uh, James says he listens to this show on podcast. So, James, if you're listening, uh, you're welcome to come on anytime you want. I like James. I have a lot of respect for uh, the kind of work that he does. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to... Uh, Charlie in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Thank you for taking a call, Frank. And let me get to the point uh, quickly. Do you think that the current mistake that President Trump made by dining with uh, Kanye West and the other guy, Nick Fuentes, do you think that this mistake, and it is a mistake, I mean, President Trump's not a racist or anti-Semite. I, I don't believe that he is. But do you think that this obvious mistake and his inability to course correct by that i mean apologize or just condemn the anti-semitic views of the individuals involved do you think that that is a fatal mistake for his current presidential ambitions that Uh, is to say his desire to get back in the white house i actually don't charlie thank you for the call one is uh, and i did some polling not only of the radio audience but the facebook audience and most of the trump diehards are still with him and You know, the thing to watch, and Jeff Greenfield had a good article on this in Politico, the thing to watch in terms of predicting who the Republican nominee is going to be in two years is not the polls. The polls are almost meaningless at this point. The polls are good for two things, fundraising and getting um, media attention. The thing to watch is the apparatus that the different Republican organizations in each state have for awarding delegates. See, the way the Democrats have their uh, primary system is there's they determine how delegates are awarded in each state. 
Republicans leave it up to each state organization to make that decision for themselves. For instance, in uh, 2008, when Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama, had the Democrats had the kind of uh, system that the Republicans had in place in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have won. She would have gotten more delegates than Obama. She would have been the, uh, the nominee. So if you're Trump, what you want is a system where there are, to the states that have primaries instead of caucuses, where they have winner-take-all. Because Trump, while he may not have the support of a majority of Republicans, he certainly has the support of a plurality of Republicans. And as long as it remains Trump versus the field, meaning DeSantis, Yunkin, Pompeo, Pence, Christie, Hogan... uh, all Trump has to do is get 35 to 40 percent. And in states like New York, that's going to score him about 96 percent of the delegates. That's I know it's kind of boring and I know it's kind of inside baseball. But read that Jeff Greenfield uh, column. He does a good job explaining it. And the Trump loyalists really control the party apparatus in almost every state in the country. So because of that, they are going to arrange their delegate selection rules in a manner That is advantageous to Trump. You're already seeing some states like Missouri move away from a primary and towards a caucus, which is a tremendous advantage for Trump because the Trump supporters, rather than a casual voting uh, primary voting Republican that might support Yunkin or might support DeSantis, the Trump supporters are more likely to show up to an auditorium or a hall somewhere and argue for hours. They're passionate. They're energetic. Um, Now, all of that is out the window if all of the opposition to Trump coalesces behind one candidate. But no, uh, I've seen Trump's political obituary written way too many times. They thought he was done after uh, making the remarks about Megyn Kelly. They thought he was done after the P-tape. They thought he was done after saying he wouldn't lose any support as if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue. They thought he was done after mocking uh, Senator McCain. They thought he was done after mocking Carly Fiorina. And he was never done. Uh, so I, Trump is almost like a political Rasputin. You, you, they, you, they buried him so many times, and he just keeps coming back. So, no, I don't think it's a fatal uh, flaw at all. And especially if you see the news cycle, the way the the eight-second attention span that most Americans have, the former governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, running around in blackface, he proved that all you have to do is wait, and eventually the whole world will focus on the next shiny object. The days of us spending three months fixated on one tabloid-style story are over. So, no, I do not think that uh, that is a fatal defect. Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Frank, real quick. One of your heroes in show business, William Shatner, who you and I idolize, calls you out of the blue. Very simple. Frank, can I stay at your house for three weeks? And so your question is, what would my answer be? What would your answer be? Are are you kidding? Of course. I mean, I I was waiting to hear what the condition would be or how much I'd have to pay him to do that. Are you kidding? That would be that would be the culmination of a dream come true. That's the easiest question I've ever gotten. 
Please, you, <laughs> William Shatner wants to say at my house, well, it'll be like that scene in Aladdin, right, where uh, the prince is coming to dinner for the first time. We'll have everybody we'll make way, make way. He, he will walk on rose petals as soon as he walks out of our uh, guest bedroom. A hundred percent. William Shatner is welcome to stay at our house for three weeks. one 800 848 Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Morning, Frank. It's Tommy two times again. Um, oh, my, oh, uh, first yeah. thing you got. Listen, the first thing you got to do, if somebody, if, if he wants to stay, the uh, William Shatner. I don't care how much you like him. You better ask your wife first. All right, my question for you: If aliens came to this planet openly, you know, for the whole world to see, and the president asked you to head up a commission to have the first contact with this alien race. What would your first question for the aliens be? And do you think you would make a good ambassador? And I have a caveat to that. Mm. Go ahead. You know, it's such a good question. I look. I, that's a lot of responsibility, and that plays out in yeah. the very comedically and very tragically in the film Mars Attacks. But um, I would probably prefer someone that has a little bit more diplomatic experience than me to um, to do something along those lines, because we see in that film what happens when something goes wrong, when different signals are misinterpreted. But what would the first the first question I would ask them would be, um, you know, I guess one of the more interesting debates that I've heard over the years was on actually Michael Smirconish's radio program. And he did a whole hour about whether um, if aliens were to come here, if you would want them to be religious or not. And I guess my question, because it could have implications for how they view other life forms my first question would have to do with what the uh, with the religious beliefs of the person that I was talking to was and what the religious beliefs of the culture at large would be. Because if they adhere to a, a religion that uh, involves eating, um, you know, other species that they find to be intellectually inferior, then um, it's going to dictate one method of communication with them prospectively and if they say oh well you know we don't really have religious beliefs then maybe we, we would uh gear towards another area of uh, of conversation going forward good question though tommy 800-848-9222 two open lines if you want to jump on board 800-848-9222 let me say hello to roger in massachusetts hello roger hi, hi. thanks yeah. um as um as a com- as the commander in chief, couldn't Trump have just ordered the National Guard to uh, be at the Capitol uh, that day? Uh, as a as a, as a commander in chief, uh, he still has to ask permission from Nancy Pelosi. No, it doesn't. No. no, I mean uh, the answer to your first question is yes. The National Guard can be deployed by a governor. Or the president, uh, the speaker of the house has no authority uh, to um, to dismiss the national guard. Uh, but I, I don't blame people for being confused about this because both Donald Trump Jr. and Donald Trump Sr. they have not exactly been uh, accurate about this. Uh, Donald Trump has repeatedly said uh, on television, and Donald Trump Jr. posted once on social media, that Nancy Pelosi, uh, that Trump signed an order to deploy 20,000 National Guardsmen on January 6th. But you can't see 
any such order. He said that it was refused by the House Sergeant at Arms. It's just not true. Uh, if that were true, uh, you can bet that um, conservatives in Congress and in the Trump administration would have uh, they would have touted that order all over the place. So that is, uh, of course, the Speaker has no control over the National Guard. And uh, if that were true, then. Um, you know, I mean, but again, I understand why people are confused about it because Donald Trump said it. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Peter in Piscataway. It's that away. Hello, Peter. Hi, Frank. The official end of winter is March 21st. Well, what day do you look forward to to say made it through winter? You know, I really don't mind winter that much, especially uh, given now that it's dark for me all the time. When I leave for work, it's dark. When I leave from work to go home, it's dark. So uh, the uh, the thing that affects people most about winter is the light. So I uh, I get excited about summer. I love summer, but um, uh, m- because of the nice weather and because I can, you know, smoke a cigar outside on the weekend especially. But uh, I don't mind winter that much. I, I, uh, I don't mind it. I don't even mind the snow. I mean, look, if it's a foot of snow and you have to spend an hour shoveling, that is, um, you know, that's a challenge. But uh, I like winter. I, I think it's a lot of fun. I love the holidays. I love uh, getting together with people. I love sometimes when it is snowing, it's a good excuse not to have to go anywhere. I love a, an occasional snowball fight, uh, building a snowball. Man, I, I, I like winter activities of all sorts. This year especially, uh, somebody gave Carmine a uh, sled that I'm looking forward to pulling him in uh, once it snows. So I, I really like winter. So I, I don't look at any season as, oh, I can't wait until that's over. I enjoy life as it is. So that's that. 800-848-9222. Rob is in New Jersey. Hello, Rob. Hey, hello, Frank. Hey. I got a question for you. Why, why do most of the people on WABC support getting vaccinated, uh, whether it's John Katsimatidis or, or – uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly or or any of the others. Why do they or don't they? Why do they? You, I, I really, I can't speak for. I, I haven't heard uh, Bill or John talk about that, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I so I couldn't really speak for either of them. I would suggest you reach out to them. So no, I, I have no idea. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Two open lines. If you want to jump on board, we're doing an ask Frank anything. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Great is this song. 
These are the coasters down in Mexico. Uh, that's where I am headed later today. Actually, I guess maybe early tomorrow, but it's within the next 20 hours or so. And uh, I am uh, going to miss you, but I will be back on Tuesday of, uh, of next week. Uh, Friday and Monday, the one and only Curtis Sliwa will be here. Curtis sort of does his own thing. It's basically four hours of um, stream of consciousness, which is great. Nobody does it better than him. Uh, but uh, because it is my last program of the week, we will do as we do, uh, usually on Fridays, and give you an opportunity to... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. And I would love... I'm happy to answer questions on whatever you're genuinely curious about, but I'd really love to get some... Non-political questions, uh, because uh, the whole network is politics, politics, politics. I feel like for an hour or two, three, four, maybe people need a little bit of a break. So if you have questions about pro wrestling, uh, the mob, uh, baseball, um, you know, whatever, aliens, you know, anything at all, the culture, my personal history, whatever, anything at all. Uh, you need advice about a certain situation, now's the time to do it. I'd love to broaden it beyond just the narrow, narrow area of uh, political affairs. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? You Um, tell me. Real quick, before I uh, get to my question, uh, I was on hold forever yesterday. I didn't get to tell you, you should definitely get your wife a gift for Christmas. All right, well, uh, thank you. I'll get her a gift. All right. Well, I appreciate the advice. Thank you. That way you get brownie points, you know? Even if she doesn't get you something, you're, you're one up on her. Yeah, no, I know, but she doesn't like that. Again, um, I, I'm not going to, you know, get into our relationship, but, she, but she's really not into making a deal and then having um, a partner renege on the deal. So, uh, but I appreciate okay. the advice. Thank you, John. Uh, so, um, um, so my question was, uh, if I were to create a commune on an island, where I invited people like uh, Elon Musk and uh, people who are uh, advanced in their fields. Um, would you would you come and move there with your family to be on the radio? Wait, wait. So it's Elon Musk and people that are advanced on their fields at, on, on an uh, island? Yeah, there would be no suppressed technology on the island. It would be like a new advanced civilization, but it would be like a commune. No, no money, nothing. Yeah, do what you like to do. I uh, move in there. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I'm pretty content here in New York, John. I appreciate that. So uh, I intend to live the rest of my days as a New Yorker, unless I'm publicly disgraced. In which case, I will move to Atlantic City, where public disgrace can seem at times almost like a resume enhancement. It sounds like a great place to visit. Sounds like a great place to read about. A great place to watch a reality show filmed at. But uh, it is uh, not where I would want to live. Thank you, though. 800-848-9222. Ray is in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you heard, but the Yankees made an offer. I saw that. Eight eight years, $300 Yeah. Now, what I want to ask you is, if he signs with another team, you think they should uh, go to the judge's chamber out there and put him on trial for being a traitor? <laughs> look, um, you know, look, uh, I don't blame Aaron Judge for – look, we're all trying to do the best we can for ourselves and for our family. So I don't blame Aaron Judge for trying to make as much money as he can. That's what a lot of people are doing. 
Uh, do, should he have some loyalty to the Yankees? Look, there's, I'm a Met fan, but there's no franchise in all of sports like the Yankees, so I would think so. But it also comes with a high degree of pressure. For instance, if he would go to the San Francisco Giants or the Dodgers or the Angels, I guarantee you those fans would not have been booing Aaron Judge during the playoffs. That's the kind of thing yeah. only Yankee fans and Philly fans do. So I wouldn't blame him if he doesn't want to deal with that and uh, and take his $300 million, go to California where he's from, and not be booed during the playoffs after he just hit 62 home runs. I think he can take the pressure, and he, he gets the booing. If he knows in New York, if you don't perform, like Stanton, he knows it too. And they, I think they can handle it. I think if he goes to another team, he's going to be like Cano. He'll just be forgotten well, pretty it, much. He'll, it, he'll have a few years, and that'll be it. Well, we'll, we'll you know? see what happens, uh, Ray. Yeah. But, uh, I, look, I hope for the Yankee fans' sake. I have a lot of friends and a lot of family that are Yankee fans. I hope for the Yankee fans' sake. He stays in New York. But, look, I wouldn't blame him for trying to get as much money as he could. If you had that kind of talent, and, look, you know as an athlete. Now, some athletes are, um, it seems like age has no effect on them. North Nolan Ryan pitched into his uh, mid-40s, I believe. I, I could be wrong about that. But um, And if you look at Justin Verlander, Justin Verlander is probably old enough to be the grandfather of some of the players that he's pitching to. Yeah, Nolan Ryan was 46. See, I don't know why I stopped myself. Nolan Ryan was 46. So some people, age doesn't affect them. Verlander, Nolan Ryan, Satchel Paige. But as an athlete, Tom Brady. But as an athlete, for the most part, you have a very short window to make as much money as you can. Now, if you're as successful as Aaron Judge is and probably ultimately heading to the Hall of Fame – you probably could spin that off into book deals, deals as a commentator, ways to make money afterwards. But you got a limited amount of time to make as much money as you can. I wouldn't blame him. If he can get $400 million for a 10-year contract somewhere, who's going to turn down $400 million, right? 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Uh, good morning, Frank. Um, it's been a while, so I'm going to ask you a Seinfeld question, Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. If you had to date one of Jerry's ex-girlfriends, excluding Elaine, um, which one would it be? And the second part to the question is, which one would you marry? Ooh, um, that is that is a good one. Okay, so the one that I would uh, date uh, for what may be obvious reasons and what may be somewhat superficial is uh, Sidra. Um, that's that's you know the one that ended up with Saul Bass a, or Salman Rushdie. Um, that she's the one that I would date in terms of the one that I would marry. That's a good question. Um, Mulva, uh, see, or Dolores should seemed, uh, seemed nice, but, um, I also liked, um, mm, I like, I, uh, which one was man hands? Was that Nikki? That was, uh, Gillian. 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 Eh, I meant, she, have a- uh, nah. You know, it, you maybe know, if uh, you needed two by fours, I'll, I'll tell you. Half, I'll tell you who it might be. It might be Hallie, uh, the one that he took to the Friars Club, and she got got his jacket cleaned. All right. Well, you know, there's uh, Meryl, who is Courtney Cox. Yeah, 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 yeah. She was um, nice. She was nice, but I don't Deborah know. Messing. Uh, he had some pretty no, good. No, no, they're friends. all very pretty. Uh, but if I'm picking, I'm picking Sidra, who was played by Terry Hatcher. 
I also like Hallie, um, who uh, was the one that got the jacket cleaned. So uh, those are the, those are those are those are my answers. I'm sticking with them. I like Sidra too. Thank you. Uh, who doesn't? Right. I mean, certainly Solomon Rushdie did. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Gino in New Jersey. Hello, Gino. Hey, Frank. How are you? I listen to you all the time. I love you. Thank I you. I just want to say love something you. about you. I want to say something about you. I want to give you so much respect for the way you. Talk about your son and take care of him and everything you fit in your life with the schedule you have. And my question to you is, how do you do it? Well, I mean, uh, you're just all over the place. A great dad, great family man, loving, caring, honest and respectful. And I I just want to know, does that come from your upbringing or... What? Well, Gino, thank you. You're very kind. You're embarrassing me. This is actually a little audio of Carmine from the other day. He's now taken to screaming. He now likes to scream. And uh, instead of just making random noises and or crying, he screams and fusses from time to time. This is from the other day. But um, honestly, um, I, I, I feel like I don't get enough done. I feel like I'm not as productive as I'd like to be. I'd like to read a lot more than I currently get to. Uh, but really, my whole schedule now is uh, working on this show, uh, doing this show, driving to work, driving home from work, and looking after Carmine. That's pretty much. <laughs> and uh, all of those are things that I really enjoy doing. I am trying to squeeze in a lot more biking now, which has given me an opportunity to uh, watch a little bit more uh, in the way of television or movies. But, um, you know, I think the key is to have a job that doesn't feel like work, which is uh, what this is, is most of the time this is just a real pleasure to do. It's what I would do for fun. So I, um, you know, it's not at all labor intensive. Some of my colleagues, I talk to them and they can't wait to, you know, get out of here. And uh, that's not the way I feel. I, I, I don't mind doing four, five, six, seven hours on the air. This is a lot of fun. Dave is in the Bronx. Hello, Dave. Hey, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, I've got a question for you because I've had an experience like this. Um, have you ever had a celebrity or another radio personality that you really admired and had a chance to meet either um, during your work schedule or socially who turned out to be completely different than you expected and dis- disappointingly so? Well, um, it's a good question. So, I mean, look, the best example is Mark Simone, but we were friends first before he kind of uh, started giving me the cold shoulder. But I was a big fan of Mark Simone, and, you know, I think he turned out to be um, much different uh, in person than uh, than he is uh, on the, in terms of the character he portrays on the radio. That's the one that uh, most immediately comes to mind. Um, it's funny. Mel Brooks used to tell a story about meeting Cary Grant and how after the third time of uh, Cary Grant calling him for lunch – he um, he refused to take his calls because Gary Grant got kind of annoying. It's a fun story. You can watch it on uh, the YouTube. He tells Johnny Carson and others about it. But uh, ironically, I met Mel Brooks once, and I, I he was at the producers when um, when the producers was in previews, and I went and I saw Mel Brooks in the audience, and I'd always wanted to meet Mel Brooks, so I chased him out of the theater, and I and I and he, the guy was quick. The guy was in his eighties at the time. And uh, the guy was very quick. I chased him about two blocks in New York, and I found him. 
and I got I confronted him and I gave this whole lengthy dissertation about what his career had meant to me and how I'd followed everything that he'd done. And Mel Brooks was just not in the mood. He just um, stuck out his hand, shook my hand and said, good luck. So he you know, but there have been days where I haven't been in the mood. So those are the two examples that most immediately uh, come to mind, Dave. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's one 800 9222. Leonard is in Baltimore. Hello, Leonard. Hi. Hi. Okay. I wanted to know if you know anything, whether there's any truth that the feds had an arrest warrant for the late John Gotti. They went to his house. He made him wait outside until he dressed. And then he came out. I just, I said that because I was just saying the, the amount of respect that they showed him if this was true. Because if they got a warrant for you, you know, they can knock your door down and just go right on in with guns drawn. But they yeah. didn't do that. Uh, you know, it's funny, Leonard. I know uh, John's widow very well, and I know all of his living children pretty well. And uh, they've shared a lot of stories with me about uh, about John Gotti's uh, involvement with the criminal justice system. And they never mentioned that story to me. Now, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, uh, but I never heard that. And given the um, tremendous lack of respect and lack Lack of civility that the FBI uh, showed uh, John Gotti throughout the course of his criminal career. I would be pretty surprised if that was the case. Usually, um, FBI interactions, as you point out, Leonard, uh, are characterized by overreactions and disrespect. I, uh, but I'll, I'll ask. I'll ask. I will. Um, you know, I'm going to probably. I'll talk to one of his children within the next week or so, and I will. I will ask if that's true. But I've never heard that. Hey, thanks, Leonard. There's no accounting for taste. 800-848-9222. Answering your questions on any subject. One, two, three. Three open lines if you want to jump on board. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Two quick questions. Uh, first one regarding the uh, the theme songs for the TV shows. Uh, this seemed like a show you would like. The Gary Shandling show. I like that theme. Oh, like me too. You would like. Me too. And that was, I think, in the top 20 of the, of the Rolling Stone list. Oh, it was. I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. Yeah, no, I didn't mention it because I didn't know if enough uh, people would appreciate it. And um, nobody called in to mention it. But you're right. uh, It is a great theme song. I think the theme song is actually probably a little bit better than the show. Yeah, it had its moments, but it it was a good show. I I figured you'd like it, too. Um, And then just regarding your interview with the general, um, just could you explain what you were thinking when he started? I felt... I, I thought he had some really good points. I agree with a lot of stuff, but I, I think you sounded and I felt like you were caught off guard. And what were you, what were you thinking? Like when the general, well, I, I wish he would not have, um, you know, just gone on uh, from topic to topic. Um, I wish he would answer my question and then give me an opportunity to ask a follow-up question. Um, so I was sorry about that, but I wanted him to, one, I respect, you know, his service to the country. The guy basically was in charge of the Air Force. Two, I respect his age. He's in his mid-80s, so I'm not going to get into a, um, you know, a, get into trying to interrupt somebody of his stature that served the country enough uh, far more than I ever did. You know, he's flown flown combat missions, risked his life for the country. In my opinion, he's got a right to say whatever he wants and have it be heard. And I know there's a lot of folks that um, that agree. And then um, I wish, you know, if you're going to make bold claims like the ones that he made regarding the elections, uh, saying that Dr. Oz won the election, saying that Carrie Lake won the election, I think the last question I asked him was really the most important, which is, 
do you have any evidence of that? And he said no. So I, I think if you're going to make claims like the claims that he made, you have to have at least some evidence, even if it's um, even if it's anecdotal. But I appreciate the call, uh, Joe. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say uh, hello to Gary in Inwood. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Frank. Uh, my question to you is, have you ever had the chance to listen to any recordings or tapes of Gene Shepard? Yes, I still do, actually. And uh, usually whenever there's a holiday, whether it's Halloween or whether it's Christmas or uh, whether it's a holiday that he used to uh, do one of his commentaries on, on my Facebook page, usually I will post a Gene Shepard recording of um, one of his commentaries talking about Halloween as a child or Christmas as a child. And I'm uh, hoping that with this new Christmas story sequel coming out, that that will revive interest in the whole world of Gene Shepard. Because I think uh, Gene Shepard was one of the radio, the greatest radio talents of all time. And it makes me very happy to hear that. Yeah. And if you email me, Gary, I'll send you an interview that I did with Shep's biographer, a, uh, a few years ago, I read this terrific biography on him, and uh, I spent a lot of time uh, with my friend Barry Farber talking about Shep over the years. And uh, I, uh, I think he was uh, an incredible talent, really one of the greatest. And he's uh, one of the people that I've tried to emulate to some extent. Thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with your questions in a moment. One, two open lines. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. If you have a question on any subject, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Have Love, Will Travel by the Sonics. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, just join uh, the Facebook group. We post the music in there each and every day. Search M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, This is a uh, Matt Play selection. Pretty good one, I must say. Uh, two open lines we are doing. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Whatever you have questions about, anything you are genuinely curious about, now is the time to ask them. All right, let me say hello to Tony in New Jersey who's been waiting a while. Uh, oh, by the way, let me mention before we get to Tony that we are going to give the um, we are going to give a prize to whomever whomever comes up with the best and most interesting questions as judged by Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and uh, Alex Barnard. So. Um, if you think you can come up with something interesting in the next 13 minutes that's going to win you a prize, call in. Uh, let me say hello to Tony. Hello. Hi. How are you, Frank? Great. So, you know, one of my favorite movies from sci-fi space, which I just saw, so it is my favorite, 
is 2001 A Space Odyssey. You just saw it for the first um, time? For the first time just, just this week. And, of course, you know, hearing about what's going on in San Francisco with the robot sort of robot uh, with guns, you know, using guns in San Francisco, they're trying this program of using robots to shoot guns, and this is going on now in San Francisco. I don't know if you heard about I, it. Oh, absolutely. I am watching that very closely. So, but having that happen and seeing the movie just a few days ago, I really wanted to ask you some questions, but of course I'm going to put it in a sort of a a report request. So I'm asking you to, you know, looking at 2001 Space Odyssey, if you were um, on that flight, on that mission, um, which you probably know more than I do, if you could just give us a summary, sort of a report, a summary of maybe what, um, how was the computer that um, was not to be trusted, but give us a report um, of how, what happened on the ship and what were some of the high points and some of the recommendations for what to avoid, you know, if you think there were dangers and things that happened that could have gone better. Yeah, yeah uh, Tony, I'll be honest. It's been a while since I've seen the film, so I don't know that I uh, remember everything that happened during the mission. I will say this, and look, we've spent a lot of time doing a lot of segments on the potential and the dangers of artificial intelligence. I do a lot of uh, AI art, you know, uh, so I use artificial intelligence. We all do, right? If you, um, you know, if you'd send an email or do any number of things in society that are electronic these days, chances are there's some element of AI. But I find these killer robots in San Francisco that the uh, board of Supervisors just voted to deploy, essentially. I find that incredibly frightening. I mean, if a killer robot kills the wrong person, I, I mean, it's easy to hold a, a human accountable. Who are you going to hold accountable for that robot? The uh, the programmer? I, I, I find it incredibly frightening. I wish we could have more human police officers in San Francisco. That's what I'd like to see. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Thomas in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. Hi, Frank. How are you? Great. Thank you. Look, I uh, I want to know, uh, what do you think is the uh, best Christmas movie of all time? Well, it, honestly, there are so many. And one of my great uh, frustrations is there are not enough good Thanksgiving um Thanksgiving films. One of the uh, one, one one of the things we're going to do next hour, actually, uh, before we talk about Moby Dick and other killer animals and things like that. One of the things we're going to do next hour is go through some of the best versions of A Christmas Carol. And two of my favorite Christmas movies are both um, versions of A Christmas Carol. One is A Muppet Christmas Carol with the great Michael Caine. And the other is Scrooged with uh, Bill Murray, who I think is one of the great uh, comedic geniuses of all time. I think both of those films hit the perfect balance between comedy and sentimentality. Um, obviously, A Christmas Story is great. I feel like A Christmas Story, and I look, I, I love Gene Shepard, uh, but A Christmas Story is a tad overrated when TBS and TNT decide they're going to air it all day for 24 hours. I, I don't think it's... 
that great. It's good. It's very good. It's fun. It's like a two-hour episode of The Wonder Years. But is it as great as everyone says? I don't think so. Um, I find a lot of these Christmas movies that everybody talks about are a little overrated. Um, My wife loves Love Actually. I saw it with her for the first time a few years ago. I thought it was okay. thought it was okay. Um, It's a Wonderful Life. It's good. It's good. Is I think it's a little overrated. A film which I think is a bit underrated, aside from the two that I just mentioned, is Bad Santa with Billy Bob Thornton. I think that's a wonderful Christmas film. And uh, I like, uh, I think Home Alone is great. You can tell I like comedies uh, rather than syrupy romantic drama. Dramata, dramedy, uh, I think um, Trading Places, if you consider that a Christmas story, which I do, I, I think that's terrific. I, I think a lot of the, you know what I think is a wonderful Christmas film, if you're willing to consider it a Christmas film, is the Bing Crosby film Holiday Inn. Uh, that is one of the films where Bing Crosby sings White Christmas. That is a beautiful film. It's beautifully shot. I love the story. The music is great, and it's just wonderful. It's a little politically incorrect, which I like. Uh, but uh, so those are my favorites: Scrooged, Muppet Christmas Carol, um, Holiday Inn, Bad Santa, and and Home Alone. Uh, again, I like I can watch a lot of different Christmas films, but those are some of my favorites. I won't weigh in on Die Hard because that's. Way too controversial. 800-848-9222. All right. I'm going to go to folks in the order in which they've been holding in the interest of getting, uh, in the interest of fairness. Chester is in Maryland. Hello, Chester. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Great. Thank you. Yeah, just real quick, and I'll take my answer off the air. Um, if you, if aliens landed here on Earth and you could be any superhero what superhero would you represent us to them? Oh, uh, well, look, I mean, it, I would probably, it's not my favorite. Uh, my, one of my favorite superheroes is probably Batman. But if I'm picking someone to be, you know, to represent myself to the aliens, it would be Superman because Superman is an alien uh, and the, he's one of them. So he knows what it's like to be a visitor to our planet. And uh, he's somebody that grew to appreciate Earth culture. So I would be Superman because he's one of them. 800-848-9222. Judith in Manhattan. Hello, Judith. Hi. Hi. I want to, how are you? Good. I wanted to ask you a question about the National Guards because I, I was confused about it. Um, isn't it? Um, the National Guards can only come into a state or city if the um, governor and or the mayor approve of it, unless there's a national emergency, then the president can send them in. So my understanding, and I, I am not an expert on this, and I'm happy to look into this further, but my understanding is that in a state, the National Guard and the decision to deploy the National Guard is issued by the governor of that state, not any of the mayors of that state, 
The one exception is Washington, D.C., because that is the domain of the federal government and it's controlled by the federal government. And the chief executive of the federal government is the president. So the president would have the opportunity to deploy the National Guard to Washington, D.C. That is my understanding of uh, the National Guard deployment uh, peop- uh, you know, circumstances. But I'm sure if I'm incorrect, somebody will correct me. On that. 800-848-9222. Pam is in Brooklyn. Hello, Pam. Hi, Frank. Hi. Just a curious, hi. Just a curious question of mine. I noticed that there are certain words you pronounce according to the way they're spelled, such as salmon, um, Connecticut. Um, there's another one or two I can't think of. But yet a little earlier, I heard you mention Missouri instead of Missouri which ends in an I. That's just a curious question of mine. Uh, there is absolutely no rhyme or reason to it, Pam. It, it is whatever pronunciation is going to bring me the most amusement at any given time. One of the uh, one of the most enlightening moments of my life was about, uh, was about 30 years ago when I was listening to Rush Limbaugh and he was talking about the G7 summit in Humpsback, Nova Scotia. When he said that, it blew my mind. I had no idea that you could talk about a serious subject and intentionally mispronounce a word for comedic effect. And ever since I heard Rush do that 30 years ago, I've been doing it ever since. I absolutely adore it. I love it. And I don't care if it causes everybody to turn off the radio. I will not stop it. 800-848-9222. Virginia is in the Bronx. Hello, Virginia. Yes, Frank, you haven't been giving update on your cat that was sick. What's with the cat? Well, so uh, there, um, one has diabetes, and uh, he's getting insulin, and he's uh, seems to be doing okay. Uh, and they've actually reduced the amount of insulin he's supposed to be getting. Now I think he's only getting one unit twice a day. And the other one... She has both high blood pressure and um, and uh, I think multiple myeloma or something along those lines. Oh, lymphoma. And um, she went to the vet the other day and her levels are pretty good. And uh, they're actually slightly reducing the chemotherapy that she's getting. So both of them are taking medication. There's a lot of cat medication in our house. I'll tell you that. Our, uh, our cat sitter is going to have her, uh, her hands full for the next few days. But uh, they both seem to be doing pretty well responding to it. And I appreciate you asking. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to um, Ed on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. If they made your life uh, into a movie, which Hollywood actor would you want to play you? Well, most people said that the best person to play me obviously before he passed away, would have been Ernest Borgnine. But with Ernest Borgnine passing away, obviously that's not an option. So the two the two people... He's kind of old. Eh, it doesn't matter. He's such a good actor, it doesn't matter. The two people that I think would play me uh, most effectively are, one, William Shatner, because so much of the way that I speak and so much of my intonation and pauses and curiosity and even facial expressions is modeled on William Shatner. Also... 22 years ago, when I visited Mann's Chinese Theater or Grumman's Chinese Theater, whatever it's called now, I, I visited the handprints that Shatner made at Mann's Chinese Theater, and I put my hand in Shatner's hand. And at least as of 22 years ago, our hands were exactly the same size. Exactly 
the same size. And I think really that's the hardest part about playing anybody is matching the hand size. Um, if Shatner's not available or he doesn't want to do it for whatever reason, then it's Gary Oldman, right? Because uh, Gary Oldman, he's the man of a thousand faces. He could play absolutely anybody. And pull it off effectively. So I would say he could play Churchill, and he's he's Churchill. He could play the villain in the Hannibal Lecter movies. He's a villain in the Hannibal Lecter movies. He could play a congressman in The Contender. He, the guy's amazing. guy is absolutely amazing. All right. Um, although I, I saw a picture of myself with some of my siblings the other day, and I realized how short I am. I had no idea how short I was. And I said to them... This must be what Danny DeVito's family feels like. So maybe it would be Danny DeVito just because he's as short as I am. But hopefully not. I hope, hopefully somebody much more handsome. All right. Uh, best question winner, Matt Blaze. Chester in Maryland che- with a uh, superhero that che- you would be. Chester in Maryland. Call back and we will give you a prize of some sort. 800-848-9222. Best version of A Christmas Carol. We'll get into it straight ahead. In the meantime, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. So I do try to listen to the uh, Sid Rosenberg morning show when uh, I am just getting home or when I'm on my way home from work. It's a very good show. And the other day, uh, that's on uh, WABC in New York for people listening outside of the area. By the way, I am seeing some of the numbers from uh, other markets and uh, very encouraged at the growth of our show in a very short amount of time. In other markets, I I know the ratings came out in New York yesterday. I haven't seen them yet for for our show in New York, so hopefully they were pretty good. Fingers crossed. Uh, we'll report back the next time I'm on air. But um, in any event, Sid does a great morning show on uh, WABC in New York. It's terrific. And the other day, he was listening to us as we were talking about the best TV TV theme songs, right? And uh, this is a little bit of Sid's comments after listening to us go through the Rolling Stone list of the best TV theme songs. So the reason why I started with Light My Fire this morning is uh, talking about Frank Morano. I loved his show today. He was doing that old, um, the old list radio, which I happen to like. I do quite a bit of that myself. And he was reading the Rolling Stone magazine's list of the best TV theme shows ever. It's been done a million times. <laughs> Let me interject here. That Only Sid could give a compliment like that, right? He goes, yeah, Frank Morano's great. He's a great job. He was doing the old list radio. 
which I happen to like, but nobody that knows better would ever do anything like that. It's been done a million times. Every radio show does it. They've been doing it for 80 years. But then, you know, uh, but Frank does a great job with it. It's just so played out and overdone and tired. It's been done a million times, but Frank does great with it. Uh, I was listening to it, uh, but I, I happen to like it. But it's been done over and over and over again to death. And now I'm going to talk about it. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's like talking about the greatest quarterbacks ever on sports talk radio a billion times. But Frank is more entertaining than most people, than almost every person. So I enjoyed it on his show this morning. And he does what I do. He involves these uh, these other knuckleheads he's got, which no one knows who these people are. (laughs) Who are these people? What are the names of the guys that are on his show? You want government names? Matt. Blaze. No, who's that? Matt, he runs the board. Right. He's, he's a nice guy, but he's annoying. He, he, he talks to Phil every morning. I'm like, go home. Well, let go me interject pop- here. Do you do that, Matt Blaze? Do you talk to Phil every morning? Not, no. First of all, I don't talk to Phil every morning. And Phil is Phil is doing work right. for the Bernie Institute right. show. But Phil has Phil to turn around. Phil used to work around, on our show, by the way. He used to work on our show. Phil has to turn around. And he's, if he stops what he's doing, which I don't think he does, he's usually rolling on something, getting a cut, and it's recording while we're ha- having a conversation for like maybe a minute. Well, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm supr- first of all, I think Philippe does stop what he's doing because sometimes I have talked to him because he is interesting and he seems to have a lot of inside information about what's happening. True. And so, uh, and he has no problem sharing it with whomever asks. Like a stranger walked in the other day. Uh, Philippe started telling him, you know, all the inside secrets of the radio station. But it always seems like he's initiating the conversation it, uh, too. It, it does. He right. does. Yeah, yeah. He so does. the other day, for instance, I was I was here, and I said, "Oh, you know," uh, I, and they were asking him for stuff, and I said, "Oh, don't let me take you away from what you have to do. Go ahead and do it." And Philippe essentially says, "Oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Go ahead, keep talking." He right. he encourages. The conversation. Yeah, when I walk out, he'll be like, hey, what's up? He'll say, hey, what's up? Right. Well, you know, but talking. I am surprised that anybody would accuse you of starting a conversation with anybody. That's true. Yeah. Right? And, the, and the funny thing that I like that Sid does is because, you know, Mr. Famous makes it like he doesn't know who we are. <laughs> exactly. Who, who's that? Who, who's that guy again? Who's this one? Who's that one? He knows who we well, are. Well, we know he has oh, a yeah, problem he, with Kenneth. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't go on the air and talk about me for 10 minutes about... He looks too good, this and that. Like said, you know exactly who we are. And that was a, that was like a, you know a month ago, two months ago when he when Ken first started. Right, he confronted Kenneth. Right on the air, so he knows exactly who. I mean, I know in his world of being <laughs> Mister Famous, the worst possible thing is for someone not to know who you are. So I guess he thinks like, oh, we're just the peons that I don't know who their names are that work on the overnight show. Yeah, yeah, bro. That's are, are you are you famous, bro? Are you famous, bro? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't tell. With that being said, he gave me a really nice compliment once when Lou Rafino had first started here. He came in here, I was in the control room, and he came in and he said to me, you know, he goes, you do a great job. He goes, you do a really good job. He goes, you must be really good. Because Lou just said, you're, a great, you're great at what you do. So you, you're really good if he said that. And he you know, took the time to say that to me. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, and it's very nice. So, yeah. I mean, he, yeah. no, and he, he knows who we are. It's just, it's just crazy. Yeah, well, it's, it's shtick. It's, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't take it too No, seriously. of course not. But, you know. All right, please, let's continue with the okay, Stop talking to Bill. Because Phil, instead of cutting up sound for me and doing his job, uh, talks to this I'm guy. Ve- I'm very impressionable. People well, just start. Phil's fault. I'll st- I'll talk to a homeless person. It is Phil's fault, but but Matt needs, and I and, I, and I've complained about this before. He seems like a, a very nice guy. Don't get me wrong, very nice guy. But when you when the show is over, go home. Complain to who? You didn't complain to me about it. 
He never and this he tells Phil, don't talk to anybody. Oh, I could believe that. I'm sure he does complain. To Phil? Yeah, yeah, I, I believe well, I don't know anything about it. Go ahead. So uh, the reason why I started with Light My Fire this morning is uh, talking about Frank Morano. I loved his show today. He was doing that old, um, the old list radio, which I happen to like. I do quite a bit of that myself. And he was reading the Rolling Stone magazine's list of the best TV theme shows ever. It's been done a million times. It's like, it's like talking about the greatest quarterbacks ever on sports talk radio a billion times. But Frank is more entertaining than most people, than almost every person. So I enjoyed it on his show this morning. And he does what I do. He involves these, uh, these other knuckleheads he's got, which no one knows who these people are. <laughs> who are these people? What are the names of the guys that well, are on his show? Matt, you want government names? Matt Blaze. No, who's that? Matt, he runs the board. Right. He's, he's a nice guy, but he's, he's annoying. He, he, he talks to Phil every morning. I'm like, go home. Go do your podcast. Stop talking to Phil because Phil, instead of cutting up sound for me and doing his job, uh, talks to this I mean, guy. I'm very impressionable. Well, People just start. Phil's fault. I'll, st- I'll talk to a homeless person. It is Phil's fault, but, but Matt and, he, and, I, and, I, and I've complained about this before. He seems like a, a very nice guy. Don't get me wrong. Very nice guy. But when, you, when the show is over, go home. And maybe he's got, does he have a wife or kids or somebody to talk to back home or what? And who's the other guy? That, uh, the Alex Barnard. He's a nice guy. Nice guy. And who's a good-looking kid in the studio? That's me, Phil. Macedonian. No, Phil. on their show. You are the oh, good guy. Okay, okay. What's his name again? Uh, Kenny. Yeah, he's yeah, mental. And um, <laughs> so Frank gets those guys involved in all these discussions really like I do with you guys. And they're actually really good this morning. Although the kid, uh, Kenneth, they asked him the best TV theme ever. And he said the Sopranos. I mean, you got to know that that's, that's not a theme for the Sopranos. That's, well, I mean. It's not? No. Okay, no. well, explain. What is it? Because now you lost mean? me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. That following. wasn't written for that show. That's a song. It was already a song before I, it was on that show. Correct. Right. But they do use it as the. Thing. That, that doesn't count. Oh, it's oh, a real original? song already. I wasn't sure of the of the. It's uh, stupid. Rosenberg zip. Yes, rules it has to be written know. like Love Boat is a brilliant song. It was written for the show. Okay. Laverne and Shirley is a great song. Like I wouldn't even include Happy Days on that list because it's basically Rock Around the Clock. They stole it. Well, so Sid basically his view is he didn't like Kenneth's answer because for the same reasons I didn't. I think they should give more points to shows that were originally written and produced for the show specifically. But the Rolling Stone list it did include theme songs like Friends and The Sopranos that weren't written for the show. So Kenneth was in compliance with the Rolling Stone regulations. And my wife agreed with Rolling Stone and Kenneth. She wrote me yesterday. She said, I'm listening to your segment from the other day about the top TV show songs, and I think you're being too harsh with saying that unless the song specifically tells the story of the show, it's not a good theme song. That's crazy. That's so unoriginal and so on the nose that a song must be so specifically crafted for that show that I can't possibly be an appropriate show song. So she she agreed. Alex, did you, did you um, want to add anything to Sid's comments? He was pretty easy on you. He was. Well, I actually I wanted to kind of uh, I, I wish I had come in that day. But I, I think uh, for me personally, I don't know if it was on the list or not, but 
and I know it's not written for the show, but the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia theme song is one of my favorites. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I posted the list. People could see it on Facebook.com uh, slash Moranofan. I don't remember if that was on the list. I don't remember seeing it, but um, that, maybe it, I didn't notice that, it. That and from when I was a kid, I, I, was, I have a, a soft spot for the, the SpongeBob theme song. Spon- that yeah. did make the list. Yeah. Uh, that did make it's the a, list. And that's a great original theme song. Well, so anyway, I wanted to play Sid's comments the other day because uh, he, he described this kind of thing as list radio which has been done a million times. Well, now, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to do it a million and one times because over the last 24 hours, maybe the last 36 hours, I have seen, when I turn on the television set, so far, so far, no exaggeration, 20 different versions of A Christmas Carol. 20 different versions, just in the last three days, uh, or two to three days. Ever animated versions, all sorts of, um, you know, black and white versions, color versions. I think I even came across a silent version. We are now in December. Happy birthday to Carol Alt and Arthur Idala. That means we are now going to see for the next 25 days nothing but different versions of A Christmas Carol. And it got me thinking about my favorites and yours. What is your favorite version of A Christmas Carol and why? Uh, there are two that I really like. I mentioned them last uh, last hour, and I'd love to hear yours. 800-848-9222. This is easily in my top two. It's Lou Hayward, your old boss, and your best friend. But you're dead. Seven years. Has it been that long? Jeez, I... I mean, to look at you, I wouldn't have guessed more than three tops. Oh, Frank. Frank, you are in trouble. Big trouble. All right. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that you're right, that I am in big trouble. What exactly would that mean? Look at me. Look at your future. Now, if you don't change your ways, you're going to wind up doomed, just as I am. (coughs) One minute. I'm on the 14th hole at Wingfoot. Lining up a putt. A heart attack later, I'm a worm feast. No, 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 no. You're not a worm feast. You're a hallucination brought on by alcohol, Russian vodka poisoned by Chernobyl. I've been under a lot of pressure lately. I've been putting on a big silence. That is from the film Scrooged, which even though it's about 30 years old, more than 30 years old now, It is a great modern-day take on A Christmas Carol. And basically, Bill Murray plays Frank Cross, a television executive that's putting on a live version of Scrooge, and he's visited by his old mentor and three ghosts. And they make it for 1980s New York. Uh, I I can't remember if it's New York or Chicago. I think it's New York. It is terrific. I love it because it's funny. It's got great production value. They made it kind of realistic. It is um, something – there's great acting in it. Bill Murray is terrific. Buster Poindexter is terrific. Uh, David uh, Johansson. And it's a wonderful cast, a wonderful film, and great music. 
in that film. That is easily one of my favorites. Another one of my favorites, and I wish I had seen this in theaters, and I don't think, and I didn't, but I really regret it. And this is the only other Christmas movie that I make sure, no matter what I'm doing, I find a way to watch this every year. This is, and it may sound silly to a lot of adults out there, but I, as far as I'm concerned, this is my other favorite version of a Christmas Carol. A Muppet Christmas Carol. It's Ebenezer Scrooge. Looking older and more wicked than ever. I knew he wouldn't disappoint us. (laughs) Who are you? In life, we were your partners, Jacob and Robert Marley. It looks like you, but I don't believe it. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing can affect us. A slight disorder of the stomach can make them cheat. You may be a bit of undigested beef, a blob of mustard, (laughs) a crumb of cheese. Yes, there's more of gravy than of grave about you. More of gravy than of grave? What a terrible pun. Where do you get those jokes? Leave comedy to the bears, Ebenezer. I love it. Now, the reason that's significant, that scene, is because in all the other versions of A Christmas Carol, just about, Scrooge is first visited by Jacob Marley, his old partner. In that version, he's visited by two Marleys, uh, Marley and Marley, because they're played by Muppets and they're Statler and Waldorf, those two men that are always in the back uh, and the Muppet theater criticizing everybody, making jokes. Those are my favorite characters on the Muppets, by the way. If you, in fact, if you come to my office, I have a doll of Statler and Waldorf on my bookshelf. I love those guys. And the fact that they were both Marley and Marley is great. In fact, my, my brother Alexander, his girlfriend, is named Marley. So when my sister and I have some fun, we get into a mode where we just start singing that song from a, a Muppet Christmas Carol where Marley and Marley. What is your favorite version of a Christmas Carol? Tell me. 800-848-9222. Mike in New Rochelle, what do you think? Good morning, Frank. Uh, I got a good one for you. Have you ever seen Rich Little's version of a Christmas Carol? Yes, I have actually, and according to the uh, the you know the experts, whoever the the experts are, they say that is the twentieth best version of a Christmas Carol. That's your favorite? Yeah, that's one of uh, between that and the Muppets. That's uh, you know I I wouldn't put Rich Little in that same category, but I understand why people do. If people aren't familiar with the Rich Little version of A Christmas Carol, here's a, a portion from it. Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> uh, don't bother. I didn't give it the office either. <laughs> Who the devil are you? Don't you recognize me? In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. (laughs) Jacob Marley? (laughs) Ridiculous. My Jacob Marley's dead. He's been dead these seven years. As a matter of fact, he died seven years ago this very night. This is uh, a version worth seeing if you've never seen it before. 
in spite of that, right, I, and I'm surprised to hear Mike say that because Mike usually has very discriminating tastes. I know Mike. Um, unlike Scrooged and unlike the Muppet Christmas Carol, which are timeless, I think those are going to be just as strong 20 and 30 years from now. This rich little version was an HBO special back in 1978. If you watch it today, and I tried to watch some clips of it uh, in preparation for this segment, it's very dated. It feels very 1978. You watch Scrooged, even though it only is seven years later, you feel like you're watching something, except for everyone doesn't have a cell phone that they're constantly looking down upon. You feel like you're watching something that could be taking place today. Uh, I find that night rich little version very dated. You also have to appreciate the impersonations that Rich Little is doing. People like Peter Falk, Truman Capote, W.C. Fields, Paul Lind. If you don't know those characters, like Kenneth wasn't even born when Paul Lind was doing his thing and Truman Capote. He wouldn't appreciate that. You don't have to be of a certain age to appreciate the Muppet Christmas Carol or Scrooge. Eddie in Nassau, tell me your favorite version. Uh, good morning, Frank. Look, I remember growing up when we had only a few stations on TV. The thing that really captured everybody was a Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim. Well, they say, uh, the experts say, uh, that's a good one, Eddie. Thank you. And, and the experts say that is the best version of a Christmas Carol. The film experts say it, and um, I, I, I can easily see why. It is um, it is a classic. It is an absolute classic. And if if you look... I looked at five different lists for the best versions of A Christmas Carol. Four of them all had that 1951 version with Alistair Sim. Who are you? Ask me who I was. All right, all right, who were you then? In life, I was your partner. Jacob Mann. Oh, What do you want with me? Much. In that case, can you sit down? I can. Well, do it then. Um, that is a fun version, an absolute, uh, absolute, uh, really well done version. What's your favorite? 800-848-9222. Somebody just emailed me, Eric, saying um, somebody will probably mention it, but the version with George C. Scott was great. Maybe third place. Scrooged is hard to beat. The version with George C. Scott is great. I still watch that one. I still love it. I don't make it an annual tradition like I do the Bill Murray one or the Michael Caine one, but George C. Scott is great as Scrooge. What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. <laughs> You're particular for a ghost. Who are you then? In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you sit down? I can. We'll do it then. See, what I like about this version is it's kind of spooky. It's kind of ominous. It's not funny like Scrooged or A Muppet Christmas Carol. But if you're – look, you're telling a story where you're visited by four ghosts. 
it should be a little scary, right? All right, 800-848-9222. Alyssa in Manhattan, what's your favorite version? Hi, Frank. How are you? Good. Um, okay, I would say traditionally my favorite is the 1953 version with Reginald Owen. Um, you but know, there I, are, I don't know that I saw that version. Yeah, there's that, that one is, is to me the classic. That's the one they like always showed um, when I was growing up. Uh, but there are some more contemporary ones. Patrick Stewart. Well, no, Reginald you know? Owen was back. That was the version back in 1938. No, I thought that was someone else. And there's one. There was one done in '53. Yeah. I, so I know the the 1951 version with Alistair Alistair Sim. Right. right. '51. Alistair Sim. That, yeah. One. That's that's. Uh, but the that's one the one, the one with uh, Reginald Owen that was bu- done in 1938. That and, was the other And what was one. the other okay. one you just mentioned? The one with Patrick Stewart. There was one with Patrick Stewart. Um, done more recently, and he actually, I thought, did it really, really well. You know, I agree with you, and and I've actually seen, and thank you, I've actually seen Patrick Stewart on Broadway just doing a reading of The Christmas Carol. Not a play, just a reading, just reading the story. And he obviously had it memorized. It was great. And I went with my father and stepmother about 30 years ago. We sat in the front row, and I started doing the wave after the, the show, and Patrick Stewart gave me a nice little nod, which was, I thought, very nice. But I'll tell you, Patrick Stewart as Scrooge is nothing to be trifled with. What business do you want with me? Much. Who are you, sir? Ask me who I was. Very well, who were you then? In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Uh, Patrick Stewart, that version from 1999, very strong. Can't complain about that one. Ed in Forest Hills, what's your favorite version of A Christmas Carol? You've already mentioned it, Frank. Alistair Sim, number one. I saw it 50 years ago on the Million Dollar Movie. I'm 81 years old, and to me, that's still the best version. Do you do you still watch After it every that year? Is the one you pick, Scrooge with Bill Murray. The third one with Reginald Owen. And the fourth one with Patrick Stewart. Yeah, so, those I'm are all strong. With just about everybody. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Uh, that's a good one. Thank you, Ed. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited about this. We're going to talk a little bit about Moby Dick, another Patrick Stewart film in just a minute, with Richard J. King. He's an author and an illustrator who's written a bunch of books, including... Ahab's Rolling Sea, A Natural History of Moby Dick. And we're going to get into the the idea of whether or not anything that's in Moby Dick is true. Are there actually sperm whales that attack humans? Are they vengeful? Is there any truth to it? And how what we can learn about the creatures that are in the sea today based on looking at Moby Dick back then. Uh, but Alex in California has been waiting a while. Let me get to him. Hello, Alex. Uh, actually, uh, I'm not sure I'm on the right segment. Basically, I still had a question for Alex. Sure, Frank. sure. Is go that... ahead. Go ahead. Okay, uh, my question is simply this. Uh, why do so many um, conservative commentators actually use uh, false uh, or made-up facts to criticize Beijing? And I'll give you an example of one. Um, so over the past three weeks, I've heard at least two commentators say that the Beijing government is actually uh, forcing the killing of or aborting of female fetuses. But that's not true because uh, you see the same um, male-female imbalance in India 
that you see in China. And at least for, for many, uh, many years, there was a similar ba- imbalance in Korea. And these all have three. Yeah, three uh, Alex, I, I can't speak to why anybody else says anything. If you have a question about something I've said, I'm happy to address it. But uh, I can't speak to why do others say anything, right? Uh, every day of my life, somebody asks me, asks me, why does Curtis say something that he says? I have no idea. I can't answer any of that. I, I can only be con- um, accountable for my own comments, my own things. Before we get to Richard King, I got a tweet here from David. He says the two versions of A Christmas Carol that I catch every year slash listen to are the George C. Scott version from 1984. We just played that. And, and I'm so glad that he mentioned this, the Albert Finney musical Scrooge from 1970. Uh, you know, I like musicals. That version is absolutely terrific. I love that version. The music is great. The acting is great. Obviously, the story is a classic. The story is great. And, by the way, Christmas Carol is in the public domain. So that's why every Christmas we play the Bob Grant version of A Christmas Carol with him as Ebenezer Scrooge. If you ever want to make your own version of A Christmas Carol, go ahead and do it. I know somebody that's working on a a version of A Christmas Carol with modern-day figures. um, And I don't want to give too much away because I'm not sure where they're at in production. But that's going to be very creative. You can do all sorts of things like that. Um, Before we get to Richard King, let me leave you with this from Albert Finney as Ebenezer Scrooge. You don't believe in me, do you? No, I don't. Why do you doubt the evidence of your own eyes? Because I've had a slight stomach disorder. It has undoubtedly affected my vision. You're an hallucination. Probably brought on by a, a, an undigested bit of beef or, or a blubber mustard or a crumb of cheese or an old potato. Yes, that's, that's what you are. You are an old potato. You do not exist, Jacob Marley. It's humbug, I tell you. It's a lot of... Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Just a month and a half ago that uh, Moby Dick was uh, celebrating an anniversary. And if you think about it, how many other novels are celebrated, studied, debated, discussed, written about, talked about for over 150 years? I suspect the uh, list is relatively short, which is one of the many things that makes that classic by Herman Melville uh, such a classic. 
And uh, like so many great cinematic, uh, so many great literary expeditions, it not only causes us to examine ourselves and our own human instincts, but it has led to a lot of great cinematic interpretations. For instance, you remember the version of Moby Dick back in the 1950s with the great Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab? Eyes now, ye white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. The birds. The birds! He rises! Is there anybody better than Gregory Peck? I think not. I was really eager to talk with Richard J. King. He is an author and an illustrator who's written several books, including Ahab's Rolling Sea, A Natural History of Moby Dick. Richard, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me on. So, Richard, how did you get started written, writing about uh, the creatures of the ocean, including the including some of the creatures in Moby Dick? Yeah, I never would have thought I would have ended up being a literature of the sea person or even going to sea. I grew up uh, outside of Philadelphia, suburban kid, and even in college, didn't go to sea or anything like that. But then I got a teaching job um, right after college on a high school semester at sea that traveled all around the Pacific. And I'd never been on a ship before. It turns out they were just basically looking for people that were willing to leave their homes for 11 months and could teach English. And so I went on this tall ship out of Vancouver and traveled all around the Pacific. And uh, that was actually the first time that I hadn't read Moby Dick in college. And uh, I was just looking for, it's actually kind of ridiculous. I was looking for books that I could teach on the ship. And like, and that when I was in a foreign port, we were actually in Sydney, Australia. And I was like, Oh gosh, I was at the bookstore. Like what, what, set of books could I get? I was like, oh, Moby Dick, how hard could that be to read? And so, you know, I got to set it out for the class and read it for the first time. And it was so special to be able to read it at sea on a on a square rig ship and even seeing whales out at sea. And ever since then, I was just totally hooked and fascinated by the ocean and and about writers that wrote about that space. No, I, I can imagine that would have been uh, quite an experience. So um, just so folks know, I think most people, whether they've seen the film, whether they've read the book, or even if they haven't, they probably know the story where uh, Captain Ahab has this zeal uh, to go after a giant sperm whale like Moby Dick. How realistic is Moby Dick? Do sperm whales or any kind of whales, do they really attack people like in Moby Dick? Yeah, I mean, that was basically what I did with Ahab's Rolling Sea is try to look and see sort of what did Melville represent accurately, what would he have known, and how did he sort of twist it into his fiction. And Melville had been to sea himself. He'd spent over three years in the Pacific. He'd worked on three different whale ships. And so he really was coming from a place when he sat down and wrote Moby Dick as a real expert, someone who really had been to sea himself. And also, he was a huge, huge reader. So he really combined both of those things, the sort of experience as well as the sort of scholarly and literary background. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and and so one of the major stories uh, many listeners might have heard about is the wreck of the whale ship Essex, where a sperm whale did actually smash into a whale ship in the 1820s. And that was very much a part of um, Melville's story, kind of working that 
actual story into his fictional one. Paint the picture for us in terms of what was going on with respect to the whaling industry at the time. In eight, in the 1850s, how significant a part of the global economy was whaling? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, when Melville wrote, Melville writes uh, Moby Dick in 1851, uh, but he had gone to see himself in the 1840s, and that's sort of where he more or less set his novel, and that really was the absolute high point of whaling. In terms of percentage of the American economy, I couldn't really say, but I could tell you that you're looking at about over 10,000 Americans are sailing on over 700 ships every year out at sea. And it's enormous in terms of, you know, that's obviously pre-ground petroleum. And so that's what people are using. They're using whale oil to lubricate machinery. They're using it to light their lamps. Um, so it's a, it really is a major part of the, the economy, particularly in the uh, you know in the New England, New York area. Was Moby Dick a hit right away, or like what happens with some authors and some literary works? It wasn't a, a widely read novel until later. Yeah, total bomb. Yeah, it was just it was. like yeah, total bomb. He Melville had had a couple books that were pretty successful right when he came back from the Pacific. And they were very autobiographical and talked about sort of life in the Pacific Islands and a little bit of whaling. But in Moby Dick, he he was trying to really write something of, you know, sort of hard literature. Like he really wanted to write a masterpiece and it just fell super flat. No one was ready for it at all. And, you know, there were a couple of people that liked it, but it wasn't really until the after World War One and the modernist, and people start to go back and look at hmm. what Melville was doing in Moby Dick and kind of thought about fascism and thought about sort of experimenting with different uh, fictional forms where they start to really go back and appreciate, uh, in particular, Moby Dick. So it wasn't until the last century that w- Mel- that uh, Moby Dick was widely read? Totally, yeah. Wow. yeah. Uh, it, was to- it was a total bomb, and, you know, for... For New York listeners, it's kind of interesting because after Moby Dick, you know, <laughs> Melville pretty much he kept writing a little bit, but the, his his novels and his poetry just kept getting more and more obscure. And he basically pretty much just left writing for the rest of his life and worked as um, you know on the river, basically uh, you know uh, for as a customs officer. Wow, uh, that's wild. I, I had uh, I had no idea one of the most famous novelists of all time uh, could barely make a living as a novelist. Why did Melville, I know you said he worked on uh, you know on the oceans and was had some experience on whaling ships and so forth. Why did he choose to make sort of the whale at least one of the villains in the in the in the uh, in the book i guess some people would say ahab is the villain others would say moby dick is the villain uh, what was the reason for making a, a giant sperm whale the villain yeah now that's a good question and obviously you know as you alluded to in the beginning all kinds of debate about all the different symbols and the characters which i think is one of the reasons why it survives I think, you know, it is important to really recognize that uh, most people were thinking about whales as a resource, as, um, as a, you know, a monster with a capital M, not too many, you know, the idea of sort of like flipper and dolphins and sort of like the environmental movement of the 1960s and 70s was a century away. And so Melville was really representing 
an ocean creature that was fierce. It had teeth, um, and it was unknown to most people ashore. And Neville loved the sperm whale as a symbol because it could dive down so deep. And they didn't know how far it dove, but they knew how much rope it took out, and they knew how long it could stay down under the water. And so as a sort of symbol of, you know, an animal that could, you know, like explore the depths metaphorically. That was something that Melville loved. One of the great uh, parts of the book and the different cinematic versions of Moby Dick, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Richard J. King. You ch- check out his website at richardking.info. So a lot of richardjking.info, excuse me. There's a lot of great information on there, some great articles, some links to books that he's written. And uh, he's written uh, several books, including Ahab's Rolling Sea. A Natural History of Moby Dick. But one of the uh, great scenes in the film versions of Moby Dick has to do with Father Mapple. In that version from the 1950s, he's played brilliantly by Orson Welles, and he tells another whale story. And God prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Shipmates, the sin of Jonah was in his disobedience of the command of God. He found it a hard command. And it was, shipmates, for all the things that God would have us do are hard. If we would obey God, we must disobey ourselves. But Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. I'm wondering, have you looked at that story that's told not only in the Bible, but of Mil- um, in Moby Dick, of uh, Jonah getting swallowed, or Job getting swallowed by the whale, and uh, what, if any, reality could there be scientifically behind that biblical story? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I think that uh, for Melville, and he really, you know, he spends a whole chapter kind of dissecting the Jonah story, and he uses it very early on with Father Mapple to kind of lay out just part of the idea that going to sea is the serious endeavor. It is, you know, it can be fatal and it sort of, and that the idea that um, the whale can be an agent of God. And Mm. so he's continually sort of thinking about Moby Dick, the white whale as, as potentially, you know, God's, God's hand down giving judgment. Um, But in terms of sort of the reality of that, you know, Neville kind of jokes around with it. And I think, you know, if people haven't read Moby Dick before and they're thinking about picking it up, Neville really is joking a lot of the time, and I think a lot of times people go into it really seriously, and they worry, like, oh, is, is that for real? Like, is he pulling my leg? And Neville is often <laughs> trying to pull your leg. Um, so he kind of goes into that in Moby Dick of, like, could that have really happened? And, you know, was was the sperm whale maybe even um, in the Bible? Maybe it was Le- Leviathan is sort of unclear in the Bible. Is it a whale? Is it some kind of sea monster? And Every once in a while, you do hear stories about, you know, that a, a, a hunter or a um, somebody in the water can actually, you know, find themselves in a whale's mouth. And um, there was one story down in the Southern Ocean, I think it's from the 1930s and 40s, where they supposedly found a whaleman's carcass in a uh, in a large whale. Um, wow. I think it's probably <laughs> apocryphal, but it, it's fun to think about. Um and, you know, it, it certainly sperm whales would, you know, when they were being attacked, any, 
they would, you know, sort of lash out at their attackers, you know, so they would smash the small boats. Every once in a while, you do have those events where they would smash a larger ship. And, you know, they're, they're enormous animals in agony getting attacked, you know, and so it's pretty natural for them to respond in that way. I, I know the sperm whale was integral to whale oil, which was huge back in the 1840s and 1850s and used for a lot of the uh, ways that we use petroleum today to power things, to light things. I'm sure that a lot of people were hunting the sperm whale for exactly that reason. What is the status of the sperm whale today? Is the sperm whale still around? How common is the sperm whale? What's the story today? Yeah, yeah, great question. Thanks. They, um, so that's it's important to, to recognize the sort of difference between whaling under sail and kind of the Moby Dick era and then whaling in the 20th century where it becomes more industrial. So in, in Melville's era, when they didn't have engines, they didn't have steel hulls, they didn't have hydraulics, or, you know, they, uh, they didn't have explosive harpoons, they really could only catch the, the whales that they could catch up to by oar or sail. And those were sperm whales and right whales. Occasionally, they could get a humpback or a pilot whale or some smaller whales, but they were pretty limited. And so the whalers in the 19th century and even the 18th century did enormous uh, almost irreparable damage to the North Atlantic right whales, the North Pacific right whales, and the Southern right whales. But the Southern right whales have started to come come back. Sperm whales definitely were impacted for sure in the 19th century by whaling, particularly because they spent a lot of time with hunting young and females and sort of interrupting their social groups. Um, but the but the really enormous damage and sort of the plummeting of whaling um, comes in the 20th century when you have these larger whale ships that can, you know, like I mentioned, the big steel hulls, explosive harpoons, they can catch all whales, bay whales, blue whales, finback whales, and the sperm whales and, and right whales were actually sort of secondary. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so, you know, whales are actually that, you know, you don't want to like be too optimistic, but whales seem to be doing okay now. You know, as, there was an international moratorium. You know, there are still some, there is some whaling among uh, Including the sperm whale? The sperm whale's doing okay? Yeah. I mean, as far as they can tell, you know, the, the thing about it is like, how do you know? You know, it's, right. it's like, if, if, if people are like, how do you find out how many whales there are? Yes, it's really hard. And so, you can do some DNA modeling now. So some scientists have done really interesting population studies that way through DNA, but they're still counting by helicopter, by whale watch boats. And so some populations like in the Caribbean, where you would think that they would be coming back up, don't seem to be doing as well. But in the Pacific, the sperm whales seem to be doing pretty well. Uh, Joe in uh, Queens has a question for you, Richard. Joe, what's your question? Yeah, I wanted to ask, first of all, about the killer whales. I don't think they were involved at all. And also, uh, obviously, the boats could only cover so much. But theoretically, if they had full coverage, uh, where else would they have gone besides where they did go? Thanks, Joe. Yeah, um, I'll address the second one first. Um, yeah, so... What what actually happened with the whalers and you know they would slow they basically slowly moved from place to place hunting the right whales and the sperm whales and 
when they thought that Mel, and Melville writes about this in Moby Dick, he thinks basically that the the whales are sort of running away. You know that they they always have the poles to hide up in Antarctica uh, and in the Arctic. That they always have places that they can get away from these whalemen. So he and other whalers of his day thought that they, the whales were basically just sort of swimming away from them. But in fact, what they were doing was sort of slowly hunting down resident populations from place to place. And you can see that whalemen. You know, after that, the only reason they went into the Pacific was because there were no more whales that they could catch in the North Atlantic. And so they slowly kept creeping decade after decade until they were hunting up in the Bering Sea and up in the uh, far North Pacific trying to get these whales. Yeah. You're you're such a wealth of knowledge. I could talk with you all day. But there's two final questions that I, I have to ask you before we run out of time. One is I know there was an earlier book that predated Moby Dick called Mocha Dick. I've not read it. I'm not familiar with it. Do you know much about it? And was that kind of an inspiration to Melville in writing Moby Dick? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Reynolds story is probably fictional, but probably based on sailor's lore. And that was, um, I, I think it was actually in the magazine called The Knickerbocker. And that was came out in the 1830s, and it told about a white whale um, that was, that uh, basically, you know, ran into ships that was really vicious and took a long time for a whaleman to catch, and that was a white whale. And Mocha is an island off of um, off of Chile. At lastly, so much of the story having to do with Moby Dick deals with essentially a whale having human, not only intelligence, but human emotions. He's vengeful. He wants vengeance. He lures sailors into doing different things. What do we know about the intelligence level and or the emotional intelligence level of a sperm whale in real life. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one thing that I think Melville does really, really cleverly in the novel is it's always a sort of layer of like that the the sailors think that perhaps the whale is vengeful or maybe Moby is luring them. But in the end, Moby doesn't kill Ahab. Ahab kills himself in the process of trying to hunt the whale. He's always hunting the whale. Um, But in terms of sort of modern day sentience and intelligence of sperm whales, we know that they teach their young. Um, Biologists like Hal Whitehead have done these extraordinary studies where he kind of really has identified culture in whales, dialects among different groups, Mm -hmm. teaching of each other, uh, their ability to learn. They sort of have these matriarchal pod family groups. And wow. so they have learned a lot, but at the same time, there's just so much that they can't learn um, because it's, you know, sure. hard to ask. Hey, uh, Richard, <laughs> uh, the, I appreciate the time. This has just flown by. I hope you'll come back soon. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Richard King, you could check out his website and see some of his work at richardjking.com. A lot of interesting stuff uh, on there for people of all ages, children, adults, richardjking.com. Some interesting articles on there. And he was recently on an episode of The Greatest Show on the History Channel, The Unexplained with William Shatner. Check him out on there. The episode was about real-life sea monsters. Great episode. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. 
By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears, kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. The great Bing Crosby. Uh, You're probably going to be hearing a lot of great Bing Crosby Christmas music over the next month, but uh, and are seeing a lot of great Bing Crosby Christmas films. I mentioned Holiday Inn uh, uh, a couple hours ago, but uh, certainly White Christmas. Is a uh, is a classic, and uh, there's just nobody like Bing Crosby. But this is a non-Christmas Bing Crosby song, which is just terrific. You know, talking about uh, the, the cinematic versions of Moby Dick, we played Gregory Peck as Ahab and Orson Welles as Father Mapple from the 50s. They did a wonderful, and I think it was a made-for-TV film in the 90s with Patrick Stewart, as Ahab, but Gregory Peck, who was still alive at the time, came back to be in that film, and he played that Orson Welles um, role of Father Mapple. And if there's anybody that had <laughs> as almost as much cinematic resonance and depth as uh, Orson Welles did, it was Gregory Peck, even in the 1990s, when he played Father Mapple. The ship... Made by men. Oh, listen to that voice. Carry him to countries where God does not reign. Now the time of tide has come. The ship casts off her lines, sets away across the great wide ocean. But the sea rebels. It will not bear its wicked burden. Uh, really just a one of a kind. Um, we got a lot coming up. Commendations coming up. We will take your calls at 800-848-9222. I said coming in. Denunciations coming up. Brian Kilmeade coming up. A lot to get to. And only two hours to do it is. How will we do it? I have no idea. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So you know what I just watched? Um, I just watched the uh, trailer because I saw it on television. I said, wait a minute. Isn't that what I think it is? So uh, they have on three or four news ch- uh, channels here. And on one of the screen, I happen to look up, 
and they have the trailer to the new Al Sharpton documentary, Loudmouth. And I, uh, I said, wait a minute, I think I know that guy. And then not Al Sharpton, but somebody else. And sure enough, I go online and find the trailer. And I see, and this must be 40 years old, I see my colleague Dominic Carter is in a scene in this documentary. And you don't see his voice, you don't hear his voice, but you see it's about 16 or 17 seconds in. I just linked to the trailer if you want to watch it, uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. And um, the thing that I found interesting is this. Almost every day that I see Dominic Carter, he wears a suit and tie. Now, this was maybe 35, 40 years ago. He's interviewing Al Sharpton. And he's wearing, and i got to ask Dominic about this next time I see him, he's wearing like a sweatshirt, a, a sweatshirt and, and a hoodie, it looks like to me. But it's definitely Dominic Carter. looks pretty much the same. It uh, looks pretty good there. So I, uh, I, I don't have much of an interest in seeing this documentary. I mean, I would see it if it was on television and it was free, but I'm not going. I'm certainly not going to pay to see it or go to the movies to see it because my time and my money are is very limited. But it looks like, based on the trailer, just a total love letter to Al Sharpton. Now, I have no problem seeing a documentary about Al Sharpton, but I don't want to see one that's all one-sided or a total a hit piece on him. I would like to see a balanced documentary about Al Sharpton showing the bad, the good, the aspects of his life that people don't know, the aspects of people of his life that people do know, exploring some different things. This looks to me like just a propaganda piece, which I have no interest in seeing. But um what one of the things I love doing nowadays, because I run into I used to run into Al Sharpton once in a while at the um Havana room. Whenever I would go to the Havana room, it's it's closed now. But it was a great little cigar bar. Uh, I'd go there regularly. And uh, O.B. Murray, who uh, who comes on the show once in a while, I'd see him there occasionally. But whenever I'd go there, two of the people that I would usually see, needless to say, in separate corners of the room, I'd usually see Mayor Giuliani and I'd usually see Al Sharpton. And um, I don't think I ever saw Al Sharpton pay for a cigar or, or a drink <laughs> all the times that I ran into him there. But. I love looking at old video of Al Sharpton when he was heavy and when he would run around with a jogging suit and that big old medallion. Now, I have hair that's somewhat similar to Al Sharpton. And, you know, I'm a little, I'm not as heavy as Al Sharpton was, but I'm a little heavier than I'd like to be. I am wondering if I could get away with just going all around town wearing an oversized medallion around my neck and a jogging suit everywhere. I might try this. I might try this next week. I'm not joking. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm into this. I might do this next week. I'll see how people react, right? That's one of the virtues of working at night is you get a m- little bit more flexibility with your wardrobe on a regular basis. Because that was a look. That was a cool look. I could go for that. I might do that. I don't know if I'd be accused of cultural appropriation or anything like that. My friend Bill Cortez, he worked in, uh, I believe it was Qatar, but he might it might have also been Saudi Arabia for uh, or excuse me guitar or it might have been Saudi Arabia for a time nobody knows what bill does most people think he's a secret agent of some sort i don't want to get into it but um i told bill we kept in touch because this was actually a much more convenient time for him to listen in the show when he was working in the middle east i told bill um what w- you know one of the things that i'd really like is like an arab headdress where you know how you see these arab sheiks and others tie a thing around, you know, the, the, 
the 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 I think it's a cafe. I don't even know what it is, but it's it was cool. And I wanted to wear that during the summer. I feel like it would keep the sun out of, off my face, keep me cool a little bit. But my wife said that if I wore that in public, that uh, I would be culturally appropriating and people would be upset with me. And she's probably right. But uh, I wonder if I could get away with this jogging suit and oversized. I think it's a Martin Luther King medallion he used to wear. But uh, I got to take a look. I got to take a look. All right. Uh, we're going to do commendations in just, excuse me, denunciations in just a moment. I'm all confused because it's Thursday instead of Friday. But we're going to do denunciations in a moment. But a whole bunch of folks have been holding. Let me get to as many as we can here. 800-848-9222. Bill is in Flushing. Hello, Bill. Good morning, Frank. Uh, uh, 1921, D.H. Lawrence wrote a political essay on Herman Melville. From the British experience in 1921, London and Paris tried to kill the white whale. To them, the white whale was Kaiser Wilhelm in Berlin. Mm. And they were amazed that Woodrow Wilson, as as Captain Ahab, did the impossible. The Yankees did the impossible. They were able to kill the white whale in less than 18 months. The white whale being... Kaiser Wilhelm, Kaiser Wilhelm. The military. Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, you know, uh, that, that certainly I can understand why there was a resurgence of the book after World War One, as Richard mentioned. Thanks, Bill. 800-848-9222. Lynn is in Maryland. Hello, Lynn. Yeah, Frank, I really enjoyed that uh, previous discussion. Uh, I wanted Thank to you. get a little bit into Wales and Melville, but since you brought up Reverend Al Sharpton, I have to ask the Age-old question, where is Tawana Brawley today? I'll bet you your colleague Curtis Sliwa could really give us some details you on know, that. Uh, you know, uh, there, there was an article about her uh, these days, um, uh, maybe about five or six years ago. And I think she works as a – she lives a very quiet life in Virginia. I think she works as a – as a nurse, but uh, she really goes out of her way to stay out of the public eye as far as I'm concerned. But the better question is, if you ever run into Stephen Pagonis, uh, who I do run into occasionally, and you ask him what that whole episode did to his life, I mean, I don't know how you can listen to Stephen Pagonis tell that story and not uh, be moved to tears. I mean, the damage that it did to his marriage, the damage that it did to his professional life and his reputation, and I'm glad that he was able to rebuild and put his life back together. But, um, you know, I I have frequently asked Stephen Pagonis, who who I know— uh, to come on the show, and he almost always declines. And um, I'll try again, maybe, now that this documentary is out. I'll see if he wants to comment on it. I suspect he won't. But um, he is always fearful of poking the hornet's nest and making himself a target again because his life was, I don't want to say it was ruined because he was able to recover, but there were years where his life was just a, li- a living hell and a weaker person than Stephen Pagonis would not have been able to ons- uh, to withstand the onslaught of character assassination and villainization uh, that uh, Al Sharpton and his cohorts in the press as well were determined to carry out on him without any evidence whatsoever. Tom is in Flushing. Hello, Tom. Hi, how you doing? Um, about Captain Ahab, there's a Bob Dylan song uh, on the Bringing It All Back Home album called On the Road Again. 
he mentions Ahab, the Mayflower, and Columbus, and it's really funny. It's kind of a, a dream, one of Bob Dylan's oh. dreams. And if you if you hear it, you'll want to play it on the air. Give, give me give you, me the uh, name again. To, give me the name again. The song is On the Road Again. But it's got nothing to do with Willie Nelson's On the Road Again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the album is Bringing It All Back Home by Bob Dylan. I will, came out probably in the 60s. I will check that out. Thank you, Tom. It's really good. Now, i got to tell you about Lionel Barrymore on the radio doing the Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear that? I have not, fantastic. actually. It's fantastic. I used to listen to it in the mountains, picking up CHML uh, from Hon- Hamilton, Ontario. And um, they do old-time radio. And um, and this was upstate New York. And um, But I'd hear it from all the way from there. And Lionel Barrymore, and around every Christmas they play it. Uh, in fact, I think it's like a sister station of yours. That guy uh, plays it um, on Christmas some years. Um, uh, on Sunday night, late at night. Yeah, I'm not um, sure. 970 a.m.? 970 yeah. 970 a.m.? Uh, your boss owns that, too. No, he doesn't, um, but uh, I appreciate oh, I that. He, but he's on there. He's on the air there. Well, okay. well, a lot of us are on the air there, Tom, but uh, I will check that out. Thank I, you very much. All right. Uh, with uh, Speaking of Bob Dylan, and I will check out that song, that is the number one villain in this edition of The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. Bob Dylan and Simon and Schuster are apologizing for using an auto pen for hand signed books. Bob Dylan was selling $600 signed books that were supposedly personally signed by him. They weren't signed by him. They were an auto pen. It was an auto pen. It was a machine. Now, that's not right. That You can't do that. You can't sell your fans $600 books telling them it's personally autographed and then have it autographed by a machine. Now, I, I like those auto pen machines. I want to get one, but I really don't know what I would do with it. I mean, I have a lot of stuff to sign, but not that much. So Dylan issued a rare public statement saying it was an error in judgment. It was not an error in judgment. The guy lied. And Simon & Schuster lied. They were trying to dupe the public into thinking these were original autographs, and they weren't. It was an auto pen. Bob Dylan slash Simon & Schuster, you may have a great song mentioning a Christmas carol, but I do denounce you. I must also denounce... The Taliban. Do you remember when the Taliban took over Afghanistan again and everyone was saying this is going to be a new Taliban, the Taliban 2.0, a kinder, gentler Taliban? Well, none of that is true. Uh, Case in point, what happened last week, 12 people, including three women, were flogged in front of thousands of onlookers at a football stadium in Afghanistan. The group were guilty of, what what do you think, terrorism? Uh, Were were they guilty of, uh, I don't know, espionage? Were they guilty of uh, plotting against the government? Were they guilty of, uh, I I don't know, uh, you know, running around uh, and doing things that are nefarious, trying to kill people? No. This group of 12 people that was flogged were guilty of moral crimes, including adultery, And gay sex. This is thought to be the second time in a month that the Islamist group has carried out public lashings. The move could signal a return to the hardline practices seen in the previous Taliban rule. 
Meet the new Taliban, same as the old Taliban. Taliban, I do denounce you. If you're thinking of committing adultery or having gay sex, my advice for you, stay out of Afghanistan. Uh, Let me also denounce these very despicable people. For the second time in under two months, a statue dedicated to former President Abraham Lincoln was defaced in Chicago on Thanksgiving. I mean, who are these people? These people ought to be in Afghanistan, honestly. Uh, And you'll see um, how they do over there. On Thanksgiving, a statue of a young Abraham Lincoln in Chicago's Edgewater neighborhood was found covered in splotches of red paint along with the words colonizer and land back. According to the Chicago Tribune, the statue also had Dakota 38 written on it, a reference to the Dakota Sioux members who Lincoln ordered to be executed following the Dakota War of 1862. Now, I'm no great lover of Abraham Lincoln, but there's no excuse for this. Defacing a statue, of, a, especially a statue of a historical people, of a historical figure that people really respect and many really admire. If you don't like Abraham Lincoln, there are plenty of forums for you to have that view heard. There's no excuse for statue vandalism of any type, but especially of a revered historical figure especially on the holiday which he first declared to be a national holiday. I really, I find the people that would deface an Abraham Lincoln statue and cover it in red paint like this, I find them to be absolutely despicable. So for you Lincoln defacers out there, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Google and iHeartMedia. Oh, Google. The more we learn about Google, the more evil it seems they are. iHeartMedia, they are the Walmart of radio. Um, Not a compliment, by the way. The Federal Trade Commission and a handful of states announced settlements this week with Google and iHeartMedia related to misleading radio advertisements about a Google cell phone. The settlement stemmed from complaints alleging Google paid to have radio personalities endorse and talk about their experiences using the Pixel 4, one of the company's cell phones. So what's the problem? I do this, right? I get paid. I, I, I tell people my view of certain products. I use a Google Pixel, by the way. At the time that they were reading these endorsements... The phone was not available, and many of these DJs that were doing these personal endorsements about how great the phone was hadn't used it. The ads ran more than 23,000 times across 10 media markets. This was a deliberate con on the public. This radio company, iHeartMedia and Google, partnered to lie to you. I have never, ever in my life said I've used a product and didn't use it. And yet it appears to be the standard way of doing business at iHeart. Well, we see some of the personalities that work for iHeart radio stations. Are we really surprised that they would be so willing to lie for money? 
Google will pay $9 million and iHeart will pay $400,000 as part of the uh, settlement here. This is just ridiculous. Shame on you, Google. Shame on you, iHeartMedia. I denounce you both. And I must denounce David Mack. David Mack. Board member of the MTA here in New York. Represents Nassau County on the board. Guy who has railed against law-breaking motorists. Specifically, he railed against law-breaking motorists during a meeting Tuesday as his luxury car was illegally parked right in front of the agency's headquarters. He scored a primo spot for his silver Lexus with a temporary paper license plate just feet away from the building's entrance near Bowling Green. David Mack said that a an MTA employee gave him permission to park in the spot because he has health issues. MTA officials confirmed that Mack parked illegally and said no one at the agency has authority over street parking spaces which are regulated by the city. Now, I feel bad the guy has health issues, but maybe if those health issues prevent you from parking legally, maybe the time has come for you to either attend these board meetings remotely or give your spot on the board to someone else and maybe then come off your high horse. You want to rail against motorists doing illegal things? Maybe don't park illegally yourself. And I believe he lied. I believe he lied about getting permission to park in an illegal spot. As uh, Dr. McCoy said in Star Trek Three. How can you get permission to do a damn illegal thing? Um, David Mack, for illegal parking and hypocrisy, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the state of West Virginia. West Virginia, um, West Virginia is apparently the worst state in the entire country to find a job. Uh, In order to to determine the most attractive states for employment, WalletHub compared the 50 states across 35 key indicators of job market strength, opportunity, and a healthy economy. And WalletHub says their data set ranges from employment growth to median annual income to average commute time. And in the study... West Virginia ranked dead last in the job market category. Well, is it any wonder that they say the governor of West Virginia, Governor Justice, is considering running for U.S. Senate against Joe Manchin in two years? Needs a job. Not exactly. Well, I'm just kidding. uh, Governor Justice is actually pretty um, wealthy. But West Virginia, you're denounced. I must also denounce Germany. You know, I don't understand Germany as a country. They they had no problem lecturing the world about what an awful country guitar is. And I agree with them. And they have no problem saying, we're not going to show the World Cup in bars all over our country because we're protesting guitar. But German firms have just signed a 15-year deal 
to buy 2 million tons of liquid gas directly from Gaddafi sending out all sorts of mixed signals over the priority that Germany places on human rights in the Gulf and its commitment to a carbon-neutral energy supply. These Germans, on the one hand, they're happy to participate in sanctions against Russia. On the other hand, they're um, happy to buy all sorts of money, uh, of um, natural gas from Guitar, even though... They have an abysmal human rights record. The deal was announced by the state-owned Qatar Energy, and deliveries will start in about four years. So everybody has principles until their financial interests are at play. Germany, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Pennsylvania state lawmakers. So it is very interesting. The Pennsylvania legislature decided they wanted to issue some uh, film subsidies. There's some subsidies to independent filmmakers. Now, we could have a debate about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. I tend to shy away from corporate welfare. But if there's anybody that I want to help, it's the little guy. It's struggling artists that are trying to make independent films, independent of the studio system, doing creative things, doing different things. There's a case to be made that these are job creators. There's a case to be made that these reward the cultural tapestry of not only Pennsylvania, but the whole country. So they they were going to give away $5 million to uh, filmmakers. And do you know where it went? Well... It did not go to filmmakers. It went to filmmaker. All $5 million apparently was given to M. Night Shyamalan. That's right. M. Night Shyamalan, who did The Sixth Sense, who did the, who did Signs. Still trying to figure out the end of Signs, by the way. Uh, He did Unbreakable, which I really enjoyed. His movies have grossed billions of dollars. If there's anybody that needs a handout from the state government, it is not M. Night Shyamalan. Pennsylvania, I do denounce you. I must uh, also denounce... This is a troubled young man, so I hate to denounce him, but he's so troubled and is engaged in such horrific conduct that I must... Also, the stupidity that he demonstrates in the story that I'm about to share with you is a good warning for all of you. Here's a free tip. Here's a pro tip. If you're going to kill someone, and I hope no one on this show ever kills anybody, no one listening to this show kills anybody. If you're going to kill someone and you're wondering what to do with the body, the worst thing that you can do is go on Instagram with a photograph of the body and ask for advice on how to dispose of the body. Had only Joshua Cooper listened to this show for helpful advice like this one, he might be in a different situation. But sure enough, this Pennsylvania teenager has been charged with murder after he confessed over Instagram to fatally shooting another child. The Ben Salem Police Department received a 911 call on Friday about a possible homicide with the caller detailing an Instagram video chat she received from a friend where the teen stated that he had just killed someone before flipping the camera around and showing the legs and feet of someone covered in blood. He then asked for assistance with with disposing the body. Not, Not a bright guy. 
And finally, I must denounce the Federal Highway Administration. These guys ought to get a sense of humor and a clue. The bureaucrats at the Federal Highway Administration are showing just why government officials so often fail in their mission. They cannot recognize an effective out-of-the-box approach. New Jersey's Department of Transportation had an excellent idea to post warning signs on electronic signs written in a language that New Jersey motorists speak, which is very in-your-face, kind of clever, kind of cute. For instance, this is one of the signs that you'll see in New Jersey. Slow down. This ain't Thunder Road. Now, that's clever. It's a reference to a Bruce Springsteen song because, um, you know, Bruce Springsteen's so associated with Jersey. And it might get you to slow down. Here's another one. Hold on to your butts. B-U-T-T-S. Help prevent forest fires. It's great. Here's another one. We'll be blunt. Don't drive high. These are great. So according to the head of the DOT in New Jersey, she said these signs and the messages caught on in a big way. And, and you know what? You're sitting in traffic, which is what they you, you do in New Jersey. And um, this brightens the day for a lot of motorists while getting the point across. Yet these jerks at the Federal Highway Administration banned them without even giving an explanation. This is Utterly ridiculous. The jokes made substantial points. And if the feds have any evidence they don't work, they have yet to make it public. How about you give a little deference to the states in terms of how they want to handle signage issues like this? Shame on you, FHA. Shame on you. Kills me to do it, but I do denounce you. All right. Coming up next, um, no AC report today. Because we're combining a lot of Thursday and Friday elements. We got a good uh, AC report next week. I'm going to be joined by developer Bart Blatstein. <laughs> so we'll do something interesting uh, next. What it is, I'm not yet sure, but chances are it'll be interesting. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Mexico. Uh, I am going to Mexico tomorrow. Looking forward to that. And um, I like tequila. Maybe that'll be my drink for when I'm in Mexico. Uh, I've, uh, I've enjoyed a number of different tequilas over the years. I'm not going to endorse any particular brand of tequila here, but uh, a lot of them are quite good. A big diversity in tequila and mezcal, for that matter. So that's that. Uh, I am headed to Mexico tomorrow. Keep that in mind for the $1,000 minute, should you choose to play next hour. 
800-848-9222. Mike from Parts Unknown. Hello. The kid from Staten Island. What's up, Frank? How are you, brother? I'm doing okay, man. You getting ready for Mexico, huh? Well, I'm not really doing anything to get ready. I haven't packed anything or anything like that. But And I still have to get, get uh, some New Year's Eve-related stuff done uh, before I head out. But, yes, I, I am, I, I'm as ready as I'll be. And it's cool. It's Carmine's first trip, really. You were saying the other day. Yeah, right? this is uh, going to be quite interesting, let me tell you. <laughs> well, I'm sure he'll be fine. Um, you know what? I was laughing. I tuned in before. I was saying to Ken, you're talking about Sharpton. Uh, oh, jeez. In the cigar room, you, you rub elbows with him. You, you strike a conversation with him uh, because he, he made his, uh, you know, he cut his teeth uh, up in Poughkeepsie with Tawana Brawley. You know, I've been manipulated, you know, the whole thing mm. uh, with Sharpton. Uh, but uh, did you get into a conversation with him at all? Many times over the years. Uh, and I mean, you know, not so much when we're smoking cigars, but yeah, over the years, many times. And uh, he's, uh, I got to say, a very, a very engaging conversationalist. He, and he knows, um, he knows politics and the media very well. He's actually a very uh, interesting and entertaining person to talk to. I'm sure he can be because uh, people that remember, I do, you know, to want a Broly case, he had three lawyers. You know, Sharpton, you know what happened to his three lawyers, right? Uh, they happened to be black. They were all disbarred. Right. C. Vernon Mason and, and the others, yeah. Right, 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 right. So uh, it's amazing. Um, well, what else was I going to say? Um, well, enjoy your trip, uh, Frank. And, uh, oh, I might call Rudy Giuliani later today and speak about Dad. Dad passed away six years ago. Um, and whatever. Um, engage in a conversation. Uh, who, who's, who's better? No one will ever be better than the mayor, uh, Rudy Giuliani, of the city of New York. Not like this clown getting there now. Yeah, you're not going to get an argument from me on that uh, on that front, Mike. Uh, mayor Giuliani is. Uh, I mean, there's there's so few mayors in history of any city, not just this one, that are genuinely transformative, and um, that's one of those guys where you can see physically before you, the difference in what he did to this city. Uh, he's transformative. Definitely. And you know what, uh, uh, Frank? Um, uh, on his show, I, I mentioned uh, I knew seven people from Oceanside Rockwell Center who died 9-11. I volunteered three weeks later, 9-11. It's a day I'll never forget, the people I met. And, and you know, uh, anybody who volunteers, I said it on your show before, anybody who volunteers in any capacity, I take my hat off to them. Because they, they, they're giving of themselves to, to uh, you know, I've worked in, uh, volunteered in soup kitchens in Long Beach and this and that. But, um, all right, Frank, listen, enjoy your trip and um, uh, all the best. And I hope Carmine is, he'll be fine on the plane. And uh, uh, raise a glass, you know, Frank, Thank- raise a glass this week. Yeah, so, uh, enjoy. Th- thank you, Mike. I'll see you in a few days. I appreciate it. No problem, Frank. Take care. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Um, but, uh, I, I, so real quick, let me give you a quick update on, uh, my laptop computer. Okay. Now I'm, I'm not going to rehash all of the drama here. I'll give you the reader's digest version. So I was using a, uh, laptop computer that my former employer had given me because I was still doing some work with them. So they, uh, about a year ago, they upgraded me to a different type of computer. I had to give them my old computer, get this new one, got this new one. And I've been using that. 
for the better part of the last year. Now, about five months ago, roughly, they said, um, all right, you don't really, you know, you know, you're not really technically working here anymore. So you're no longer with us. We're not paying you anymore. Fine. Good. Okay. No hard feelings. We're all, we have a good relationship, everybody. Okay. So, but I'm still using this computer. And I was trying to figure out what to do when they finally asked for this computer back. But nobody made asking for this computer back a big priority. So month and a half, two months ago, this computer stops working. It turns on, but I can't do anything with it. We, we all look at it. Everyone here looks at it. Some very bright technical minds look at it. Judge Brendan Lantry looks at it. Everybody looks at it. Rachel, who works here, uh, looks at it. Everybody looks at it. Nobody can figure out why it's not working. So... Obi Murray, who's kind of a renaissance man, he's a crisis communications guy, he runs political campaigns, he's a commentator on TV and on radio, he's a, a very bright guy, right? He, that's why we have him in studio. He's a, kind of a night owl, which he, we like. And he, he, you know, veteran, military veteran, great guy, good, close friend of mine. He co- lends me, he comes over to my house when my wife is out of town. And uh, we stay up till one thirty in the morning drinking Portuguese liquor and smoking cigars. And we never really get around to working on the computer. But he lends me a whole bunch of these tiny little screwdrivers. because I And then I use the tiny little screwdrivers to open up this Dell laptop. Sure enough, I'm not sure why I always think I'm going to be able to figure these things out. I open up this Dell laptop. I can't figure out how to do anything. And I'm hoping by jiggering around the hard drive or something that I'll click something back into place. I don't do anything. It's it's just as much of a paperweight after I started using it. So then a um, couple of days later, Obi Murray comes here to the radio station on a Friday. And he pop, is able to pop out this hard drive. And he gives me the hard drive. He says, take this to Best Buy. See if they can get your data off of this hard drive. This way, even if this computer is toast, at least you'll be able to get the data that you have on this hard drive. So I um, that was about three or four weeks ago, and I have not yet made this trip to Best Buy. I know people are going to think this is procrastination. Maybe it is. What it is is it's a function of my triage, essentially. My day, every minute of my day is just packed packed so so i didn't get there but it's been on my to-do list for two weeks so i have the computer and i have a hard drive that doesn't work outside of the computer lo and behold i get an email a couple of days ago from my former employer hi frank I received, this is a, uh, you know, like a, I don't know what his job is there, but he's like a, uh, uh, he's in charge of computers, uh, a human resource. I don't know what he does there, but he he gives people a hard time and handles a lot of administrative stuff. He's very good at his job. Hi, Frank. I received a call earlier this week from a blank, I I think people know the company I used to work for, but I don't need to mention it, from a blank company, Acme company, Acme XYZ. Computer services staffer. The tablet Dell computer you have of Acme XYZ came up on that list as not having been run at a Acme site for some time. For some computers within Acme, 
the computer will fail to run if not refreshed at the office or another Acme location, and it will fail to boot eventually. This is exactly what happened to me. Now, um, he finishes the email. With you as a contractor, I have not seen an invoice come by my desk nor done a check request recently. With that the case, would you arrange a day and time with me for a computer return? Now, all I'm thinking is, if this computer had essentially a self-destruct mechanism, couldn't they have given me a heads up about this before I was in this position of wondering why this computer doesn't work? And sure enough, um, I had a caller when I was trying to figure out these computer difficulties that called in and said that's what would happen. And sure enough, he was right. So now I have this computer, which if it had a hard drive in it, would probably work if I got it to the office. So today... I am going to, after the show, go back to my former employer and drop off this computer. But here's the problem. It now no longer has the hard drive that Obi Murray uh, took out of it. So I have a few different options here. One, I could um, return it and return the hard drive separately and, um, you know, wish them luck in getting this back up and running. That's one. Um, Two, I could, and this is probably the route that I'm likely to go, I could try to put the, now that I've seen Obi Murray do it and watched a variety of videos on this, I could try to reinsert the hard drive myself into this computer and drop it off uh, later today. Three, I could, um, I guess those are really the two options, right? I could give them the computer and the hard drive separately. I could try and insert this myself. Obviously, the wild card is if Obi is in New York and awake right now and he wants to come to the radio station and help me reinstall the hard drive. And then my hope is if we're able to go, if I'm able to get this hard drive back into this computer somehow, I would love to boot it into the old office there and see if I can get the data off of it that way once it's plugged in back onto a network that it could be. But all I'm thinking of, all this aggravation could have been avoided had they just told me this. No one ever told me this. So um, so that's where we are today. That's where, And I'm going to have to get a new computer, but I've gotten a lot of suggestions from people in terms of a new computer to purchase, so I'm going to get one. I'm going to order one, if not today, as soon as I get back from uh, from Mexico. So that's where we are. Um, Matt Place, are you aware, do we have any of those, um, any of those little screwdrivers here, the OB style little screwdrivers? You'd have to ask uh, Rachel about that. I, I wouldn't know. I've and, never seen them. And around. what time does she get in? Around six, as far as you're aware? Yes. All right. So I'm going to, I will, uh, I will, I will reach out to, uh, to Rachel. Cause I think one time I asked her to look at the laptop and we did not have the little screwdriver. So I may just... I'm not going to make this my my whole day. If I have to just bring it back with the, again, they may say, hey, why did you pop this computer open and remove the hard drive? But, you know, what am I going to say? Are they going to know that you opened it? What? Are they going to know? Is there, was there like a, well, sometimes not, there's a sticker on there no, that if no, it breaks no, the I don't seal. Think so. I don't think so. But, I mean, they'll know, obviously, if the hard drive's not in well, there. And yeah, if we, if if we you, don't have if, a little if screwdriver. If you don't put it back in. Right. Well, so I'm going to put it back in if we could find these little screwdrivers. And if you would have returned it in the, when it broke and been like, hey, 
this computer's not working, they would have gone, oh, yeah, it's not working because we turned it off. But And I, then you could have got your stuff off of it. Yeah, exactly. And, right, and but, now you're in this dilemma of right. you took the whole thing apart. Right. It's like an episode of Three's Company. Right. That's exactly right. My life is an episode of Three's Company without uh, Suzanne Summers, But um, – the I reached out to the the one of the IT people, not this guy, but another IT guy, at the time that it's it stopped working, and I got no response, no response. I think oh, okay, all right, they're busy with other people that actually still work for that company. I can't be that big of a priority, so that's um so that's where we are. We'll see if we get get Ob here with his little screwdrivers, and we'll see if we can get this hard drive placed back in, and then I will return this computer. And this will bring an end, hopefully, to what has been a sad and frustrating saga in my life. That's where we are. We'll see. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have discussed thus far. Uh, Brian Kilmeade joining me next hour. Very much looking forward to that conversation. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is um, What Goes Up, Tyrone Davis. If Have you noticed that you are seeing a lot of ads for Black Friday and Cyber Monday, or, you know, as of the last week or so? Have you noticed you are getting a lot of, seeing a lot of media coverage, particularly online, for Black Friday and Cyber Monday? You ever wonder why? Is it just because the news media has an interest in informing you? Nope. If you have been bombarded with articles from media organizations over the last few days about the best Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals, there's a reason why. Around this time of year, it certainly seems some news organizations effectively morph into online retailers sending their large audiences to Amazon and other e-commerce destinations to purchase holiday gifts. And it's for good reason. The vast majority of the newsrooms that publish such articles quietly, quietly profit 
off of the referral fees. A business that has quickly become a key revenue generator for media outlets. Yes, most news sites do disclose in tiny little small font and in special sections that they may earn a commission from the sales. And yes, they do stress that their editorial choices are not influenced by such sales. Come on. You believe that? I don't. But nevertheless, this raises a pretty significant ethical question. Given, given the blurring of lines between editorial content and what's effectively giant cash cows. For example, on some news homepages and on social media over the last few days, articles hawking products on sale have received the same prominent positioning that major news articles are getting. And some of it is actually replacing the space typically occupied by major news articles. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So just be aware that when you see, get it, you know, uh, uh, CNN.com, Fox Business, CNBC, whatever, and you see all these articles about Black Friday deals, Cyber Monday deals, especially if they include links to products, those news sites, those companies are being paid if you click on those links. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't click on those links. If you need to buy something and you see an article about something that's useful to you, God bless you, buy it if you want. I mean, I don't care. But you should just be aware that what is essentially masquerading as objective journalism is a growing part of the business and revenue model for these news agencies. The more you know. Am I right? All right, 800-848-9222. You know, before we were playing some clips from Moby Dick in the uh, the 1950s version of Moby Dick, and two of my favorite actors are in that picture, Gregory Peck as Ahab and Orson Welles as Father Mapple. It is Father Mapple that is not a Morano-esque pronunciation of his last name. Well, Gregory Peck, um, he played Father Mapple in the 1990s version and was uh, absolutely terrific when he played Father Mapple. And Patrick Stewart, who was Captain Ahab, in that 1990s version, we were just talking about him with a, with a Christmas Carol. That is a version worth seeing as well, uh, because Ca- uh, Patrick Stewart's portrayal as Ahab is second to none. The harpoons do lie all twisted at him like so many corkscrews. I dug his spout is big, like a whole shock of wheat, thick as a pile of Nantucket wool. I test ego by death and devils. That white whale is Moby Dick. It's Moby Dick you've seen! Moby Dick. Captain Ahab. Was it not Moby Dick that took off their leg? Aye, Mr. Stellar. Aye. Aye, my heart is all. Twas Moby Dick that dismastered me. Moby Dick that reaped away my limb like a mower a blade of grass. Ugh. Love it. You know, it's funny. I'm a Star Trek fan, and I think most people that are fans of Patrick Stewart are fans of Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, I 
I came across a list ranking from worst to best all of the Star Trek films, and I agreed with some aspects of it. I didn't, uh, I didn't agree with others. But one of the Star Trek films that consistently gets rated highest is the film Star Trek First Contact. It's a wonderful film if you're a Star Trek fan. It's directed by Jonathan Frakes, who plays Commander Riker, and it stars, obviously, Patrick Stewart, who plays Jean-Luc Picard, who's great in that film, as he's great in every um, in every depiction of Jean-Luc Picard. And there are so many similarities between Picard in that film and Captain Ahab. And he, he references that himself. Uh, he, he recognizes the similarities between Ahab hunting the whale and Picard hunting the Borg. For revenge's sake. And uh, I am brought right back to that film listening to Patrick Stewart play uh, Captain Ahab. So uh, leaving town in about an hour. Well, for the radio purposes, I'm leaving town in about an hour. I am sorry to miss. There's a whole bunch of great stuff happening today. Tonight, our boss, the owner of our station, John Katsimatidis, is being honored at the Tunnel to Towers Gala. I would love to go to that. That's a a wonderful event, and it's an organization that I'm very close to and have raised a lot of money for, but I can't go. I have to miss that. And so you know that not only do I hate to miss it, but you know everybody's going to be whispering, oh, where's Frank? Where's Frank? How come not? Sid is here. Dominic's here. Everybody's here. Where's Frank? But I I hate to miss that. And uh, I also, my friend uh, Arthur Idala is being honored somewhere today. It's his birthday today. I hate to miss that. And then um, also Brian Kilmeade is having his uh, big event in Newark, New Jersey tonight. So I hate to miss that as well. So I'm 0 for 3 in terms of events that I'd love to go to today, but I'm unable to go to because I'm going to be in Mexico. Now, I'll get over it probably after my fifth or sixth glass of tequila, but I, I hate to miss it. So... Uh, definitely encourage you to uh, try and go to that Brian Kilmeade event at the um, NJ Pack Center in Newark tonight. He's doing a whole talk for the uh, president and the freedom fighter. Uh, there's tickets available on BrianKilmead.com. He's going to join us in about uh, 35 minutes and tell us what you and tell us what you can expect if you do go to that. But it's a it's a great it's a great little presentation he gets. Uh, Brian, I've seen him speak live many times. He's really compelling, really compelling. And even if you don't agree with his politics and things of that nature, and I get it, he really almost brings history to life. It's a it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I definitely suggest you uh, you check it out. All right, tonight, yeah, it's, no, it's tomorrow night. So it's Tuesday, it's Friday, December second. I hate to miss. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everybody. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I, I explained yesterday how I was happy that I don't have much Christmas shopping to do this year. I do have some, um, but really a handful of gifts, which I'd prefer. Pr- prefer it. None of you are expecting anything, right? You know, you're not expecting anything from me? Um, no. No, right, Kenneth? No. A Mercedes? Yeah, like good luck. <laughs> uh, but um, the limited amount of Christmas shopping that I do have to do, I, I hate to admit this, but... It's true. I am going to do it largely online because for two reasons. It's easy. I don't have to go and wait in line somewhere, look around for the product that I want to purchase, wait in line to pay for the product, and then uh, drive back to my destination, especially when you have nocturnal hours. The convenience of shopping online is wonderful. Um, Additionally, I, when you shop online, and I think a lot of you who do this realize this, you can basically picture anything and you could find it online from there's some store that sells it. If Amazon doesn't have it, this store has it. If this store doesn't have it, that online retailer has it. No matter how obscure, there's something old, new, there's someone that sells it, whatever it is that you want. So it's quick. It's convenient. Oftentimes it's cheaper and you have unlimited options. So where does that leave the brick and mortar retailer? If you're a small business, a I hate the term mom and pop, but if you're a small business and, and you're a retailer and you rely, and this is one of the things that American Express does, which I like, they did last weekend Small Business Saturday. I didn't participate in it because I was uh, busy with my son's birthday. But I usually do try to buy something on Small Business Saturday. If you're a small business retailer especially, and you traditionally do a lot of your business between Christmas and New Year's, how can you possibly compete with the onslaught of online retailers? So I thought it might be fun to crowdsource this question and ask you, listeners, if you were giving advice to small businesses, brick-and-mortar businesses, how can you compete in the era of people going to big-box stores and buying things online? 800-848-9222, because the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Amazon's customer satisfaction rating hit an all-time low. And I'm wondering if this could open the door for the so-called mom-and-pop shops to win back customers. As we know from Seinfeld, sometimes the mom-and-pop that is running that specific store is not really a mom or a pop. So how does that local bike shop on the corner Earn your business. How can small businesses become customer-obsessed and beat the online retailer? Or is there no way? 
800-848-9222. We've seen for years the small businesses struggle to compete against Walmart and Home Depot and the like. I think this was depicted very, very well on the uh, television program South Park. I usually don't watch South Park, but this was one scene. Uh, I'm not going to play you the whole thing, but I'll play you a portion of it that I found very, very funny. Excuse me. Hello. Can somebody tell me why we're going to Jim's Drug to buy Voltar cards when Walmart has them for three bucks cheaper? Dude, I can't deal with Walmart right now. My parents had me there for three hours last night. Oh, sorry, boys. I'm going out of business. Why, Mr. Farkle? I can't compete with Walmart's low prices. Everyone is shopping there now, and well, I can't make ends meet. I've got to sell the store and try to find another line of work. Carmen, stop it! Well, I just thought I'd play a little violin, Cal. I appreciate your business, boys, but you'll have to try somewhere else in town. <laughs> See? That sucks, dude. What, that's called progress, Cal. Yeah, but what about all the people getting laid off from the grocery stores? And what about all the... Whatever, I can go get another one at Walmart. It was only five bucks. <laughs> so these big box stores, and Walmart's just one example, but Walmart, Target, Home Depot, they have, a, in many respects, a predatory business model, which is they come into a community and they make the prices so low and they initially stay open at all hours that they price everyone else out of business. Uber has done this to some extent. And then once everyone else is out of business, slowly they raise the prices. Now, it was bad enough when it was Walmart versus Joe's uh, Toy Shop. But now Joe's Toy Shop not only has to compete with the big box stores, it has to compete with Amazon. It has to compete with Target Online. It has to compete with all these online retailers, which now offer the infinite selection. How do they compete? We're making all of you, we're deputizing all of you as small business consultants. Is there any way that Joe's uh, Toy Store can compete? 800, if so, what is it? Be specific. Be specific in terms of marketing. Be specific in terms of customer service. Be specific in terms of, I don't know, anything that can help these uh, small business retailers compete with the monolith of online retailers. Because, look, I just told you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the limited Christmas shopping that I have to do online. And I I would love to give my business to a small business. Sometimes these... uh, Online retailers do offer a way to buy from a small businesses, but the small business has to jump through a whole lot of hoops hoops in order to uh, adhere to the policies of a company like Amazon. So even though you are buying from a, a bookstore, for instance, in uh, in Iowa somewhere that is a small business, that bookstore has to basically do sorts of things from pricing to content that adhere to Amazon's way of doing business. How would you advise a small business brick-and-mortar retailer as to how they can win back my business and the business of so many 
who are now doing their shopping online. Because I think this is an opportunity. When I saw that Wall Street Journal story reporting that the customer satisfaction for people using Amazon has hit an all-time low, there's a first thought I saw was this is an opportunity for the small business store to win back its share of the market. How do they do it? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Mary in Brooklyn. Hello, Mary. Good morning, Nick. I watch. I listen to it almost every morning. I'm a, I'm up all night. Thank you. Um, about the brick and mortar, I'm not sure you're familiar with the ultra orthodox community, where sixty uh, percent of them do not have smartphones. They walk around with their flip phones, and they don't sew. For them, there's a store in the neighborhood, and they visit sixty years, and I think they're doing great because they have all those customers who appreciate the service and the quality of the stuff, even though they do not buy it online. Then the second item I want to tell you was that there are some brick-and-mortar stores who are lacking in what we call meadows, which is characteristic. You're coming in three times and you don't buy nothing, get out of here. They don't respect the client, Mm. the the customer. That's another issue. Then you find a store that really does the best, and they put sales every week, and they stick to and they do service like delivery, and uh, sometimes they'll even give a break to a customer who doesn't have enough money. That's what keeps them in business. So the second one that you alluded to, that's easy to fix. The uh, the brick-and-mortar retailers need to be nicer to the customers. As far as uh, extrapolating the first thing you mentioned, maybe we just need to continue to encourage the Orthodox Jewish community to keep reproducing at prodigious rates, and maybe pretty soon the market share that's being lost to online retailers can be made up with the growing Orthodox community. That's not a problem. Trust me, it's going to happen. You do not have to worry about that exponentially. Thank you, Mary. Yes, my uh, my sister-in-law is uh, is an Orthodox Jew, so I, I completely I completely can understand that. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Robert in Staten Island. Hello, Robert. Hi. How are you? Good. Uh, a couple of quick things. One, customer service to the point where you're kissing their ass, and I don't mean ridiculous, but really nice, and go, anytime you have an opportunity, your employees should go above and beyond, above and beyond whatever, the, you know, just help the people out. I have a small business. I have been in business for, since 2006. What kind of business do you have, Robert? I test elevators. You test elevators? elevators? Yeah. That's a business that I imagine has its ups and downs. It certainly does. And first time you ever heard I, that joke, I'm guessing. <laughs> first time in 42 years, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, I anytime I have an opportunity to go above and beyond, I do it. And so far, it's it's been it's working. The, the other thing is, it, it's a shame. I mean, I never used to use Amazon. Now it's like, oh my god, how would I live without it? It's just so convenient with the you know. So on. Everyone, if possible, should have an online have an online service. I mean, even Walmart now they they have they've had it for years with online service, and you know it's it's so tough. All I can say is that probably the most important thing is go above and beyond with the customer service. And that's about it. You have a great show. Thank you, sir. Thank you. you. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. That's good advice. Uh, All that is good advice. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of common sense. You want better customer service, right? But um, sometimes, how do I know 
that I'm going to get better customer service coming to you. Uh, let's say, well, Matt, you doing a lot of uh, Christmas? Do you, you're Jewish, right? Yeah. So are you doing a lot of holiday shopping, a lot of Hanukkah shopping this year? No. I, I mean, anything I buy, I, I, I'll do it online. But in terms of what a small business has to do, they got a price match. If you say, mm. if you find I something like online, yeah. as long as it's not some kind of crazy, you know, Cyber Monday, Black Friday thing, they have to, you bring in a legitimate online price and show it to that store owner and say, look, here's the same thing that you have. If you can match the price, I'll buy it from you right now. That's the way they have to do it. That's the only, that's really the only way. So the, the limited amount of shopping that you need to do this year, how are you doing it? It depends on what it is. Well, what are you getting? Well, it, I, it, bought, I already bought a computer. For whom? For me? For myself. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> you want one? Yes. I'll give you, a, you do need a new laptop. I do, yes. But I bought a uh, computer and I bought it from Best Buy because I like to go in and get it. I want to I wanna see it. I want to be able to bring it back if there's something wrong with it. I don't have to go through the hassle uh-huh. of the shipping. And I've done that too. And I bought things that you would normally buy at a store online. Like I bought, Amazon has a thing where you can buy uh, clothing, like shoes. So I bought. I went and picked out five pairs of boots. They send you all five pairs, and then you keep what you want and send back the rest. My wife does that. It's not through Amazon. She does it with clothing. Um, there's a couple of different companies that yeah, she but, does it right. with. Right, and Amazon is one of them, and that's, that's what they did. And they say, look, you have a limited amount of time to send it back. If you don't send it back within by this date, they're going to charge you for everything. So you say price matching. But I would say price matching for okay, small businesses. So Mary Absolutely. says we need more Orthodox Jews. And um, uh, Robert says we need uh, the better customer service. Matt says uh, price matching. Ed, the milkman, you're a small business guy, right, Ed? Yes. Right. And so I tell everybody, you can buy milk anywhere. Our stuff is, first off, the milk we sell is a better quality than any supermarket milk. And I'll take anybody up to that. Hey, so my son is week. drinking whole milk now. Do you deliver to my area? No, but um, oh. you're in Staten Island. I'll find somebody. For yeah, you. yeah. Refer him. Yeah, that would have saved me a trip to the grocer the other day. Yeah. And we sell service. And I buy from like a local hardware store because when I go there, I can walk in and I say, yeah, this is what you need. They know exactly what you need. I don't have to go to some big box store and buy a package of nuts and bolts when I need four of them. Well, well Ed, the but just to play devil's advocate and one, here, and I'll let you f- finish your comment unabridged okay. and uninterrupted, but just to play devil's advocate, I have a hardware store right near me, and I try to always support the local hardware store. And I went in there, this may be about six or seven months ago, trying to purchase whatever it was that I needed to purchase. I don't remember what it was. But they didn't have it. So then I was forced to then go to Home Depot, which had a much greater selection. So um, how does the small business, which obviously can't carry the the almost never-ending supply of nuts and bolts that Home Depot can carry, how do they compete when I know as a customer that if I go to Joe's hardware store, they may have what I want, they may not have what I want, but if I go to Home Depot, chances are pretty good they're definitely going to have what I want. Well. I guess it depends on the store. I, a couple of hardware stores that I go to are very well stocked. They're very well knowledge. And I know that when I get a nut or bolt from them, I'm going to get a case hardened bolt. I'm going to, they ask you, what is the application you're using these bolts for? Oh, okay. And they give you the right one. 
And I know that it's not going to break when I put it in or break when I have to take it off at some time. Um, they're just very knowledgeable. They're very well stocked. And the customer service is unbelievable. You know, I'm not, plus I'm not waiting in line or getting some guy that, you know, this is his uh, part-time job that he works over there. And he says, oh, this is what you need. And then you get home, it doesn't fit. And also, if you buy, you know, you could buy name brand stuff in any of these big uh, stores, um, Home Depot and so on. And you say, oh, I got a Kohler uh, faucet for my sink. Yeah, it's Kohler, made to their specs, not Kohler's specs. So then a year from now, when it starts to leak and you go there, well, you can't get a replacement part for it. It's not fixable. You got to replace the whole thing. So you didn't save any money and you had nothing but aggravation. And if you're married, you got to listen to your wife complain that the stupid thing is leaking. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, if you go to a plumbing supply, you're going to get the proper thing with the brass fittings and the replaceable washers and everything else. And probably made here in Milwaukee or wherever it is made and not made in China. Yeah. Good point. So same old story, you know, Matt says, Oh, you go there and you tell match the price. The price, of course, their price is cheaper. It looks the same. It's not anywhere near the same right, right, product. Right. Yeah, as you heard from, uh, I think it was Cartman on South Park, that violin broke right away. But he doesn't care. You can go to Walmart, buy another one for $5. George is in Maryland. Hello, George. Yes, hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, just listening to your show there. Um, um, it says in the Bible that do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So I used to work for a seed corn corn company uh, in customer service. A what? Cor- oh, a seed corn seed company? Corn. I'm a farmer, yeah. Oh, wow. so we had sell seeds out here. So um, it was my job to take care of the customers, to give them their product. And whether they were mad or sad, it didn't make any difference. I took care of them and satisfied the customers. And I think uh, any business would do very well. If you put the customer first and keep your own ego and opinion out of it and satisfy that customer and make them happy, Um, even if they don't want to buy our product or they want to return it, I treat them very well because I'm building a reputation for the company. And if people would have that attitude, I think they would do very well. Yeah, uh, George, it makes a lot of sense. It comes down to a lot of the themes that we heard before. Thank you. Uh, the question, again, I wonder, though, let's say you implement the Matt Blaze price match philosophy. Let's say you implement the the uh, what everybody has said about customer service. Let's say you implement the Mary sele- selection of um, we're not going to throw anybody out of the store. Let them sit there and browse all day long. How do you market that as a small business in a manner so that – Customers know that's what they're going to get. They know that if you walk in the door, they're going to get the Matt Blaze price match. They're going to get the George customer service, and they're going to get the Mary no heckling philosophy. How do you market that these days? 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Con Com. Uh. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. First off, safe travels. Um, I've noticed um, with Amazon this slacking. Um, you know, they always have a next day service. I haven't been getting that. I, I did a lot of my uh, shopping uh, with a, uh, a brick-and-mortar store. I actually did, I did it the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I don't want to mention the name. Uh, it's an electronic store on Long Island. Went in there, 
knew exactly what my kids wanted, went in there. They always, that's where I go every year for uh, my kids' electronic stuff. They always treat me good. They treat, you know, like I'm a, a person. But the big problem with a lot of the stores that I find, like Walmart, Poles, and all them, is their return policies, mm. where Amazon, you can return, you can wear something, have a hole in it, they'll take it back and give you your money back, right. where the other stores are not doing that. And I think if they were to implement that, be more customer-orientated and treat people like they are, not as a number, we would get more people wanting to shop. Like I said, I only shop at this one store for my Christmas electronics, and they're always excellent. They're family-owned. They're on Long Island. They've been in business over 100 years. And uh, I love going there because they treat me. And every time I have an issue, they'll go out of their way. And if the TV – I had a television issue, Frank. And I had one month left on the warranty. They came. They swapped the television out. And they extended my warranty for another year. Wow. And where could you put that? So – you know, but I don't see where Amazon, they've been slacking lately. A lot of the delivery. Well, yeah, I mean, you're not the only one. I mean, this Wall Street Journal article says overall this is the lowest customer satisfaction rating they've ever gotten. So that's where I think the opportunity is for local retailers to reclaim some of this market space. And I appreciate the uh, the call, Joe. What I want to do is if there are small businesses listening to us right now, give them the tools to compete, to do that. 800-848-9222. Lorraine is on Long Island. Hello, Lorraine. Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, how about gift wrapping? Have the have the brick-and-mortar retailers offer gift wrapping as a complimentary service? Yes, absolutely. I think that's yes. a great idea, and, and actually. And also, when you're leaving the store, have someone stand there and have a nice hot cup of chocolate on your way out. I like that a lot, actually. Um, I would go back to a, a store that has a hot cup of a cup of hot chocolate uh, when you when you store there. Imagine that. I think that's a great idea on both fronts. Yes, only when you're leaving. You don't want them walking around the store with sure. That with makes the, sense. The that makes sense. But you know, just say thank you for coming in. If you if you bought something, or always say thank you and have a merry Christmas or what have you. And nice cup of chocolate, hot cup of chocolate. It's not going to cost the store that much money but it's good um it's it's a nice thing to do i actually think it's a a wonderful idea i'm going to put that on the the, uh, list here i'm going to write that one down robert is in suffolk hello robert hi frank Uh, as a former small business owner did you ever hear of the harvard rule of four uh i if i have i don't recall it at the moment so fill us in okay It's something that I was taught a long time ago when I first started getting into sales. If you have something that nobody else has that people want and can sell at a price which you can make enough of a profit, uh, I forgot the fourth one, then you have... I can see why you're out of business. No, (laughs) I... Markets went against me. No, sure, I'm kidding. Because uh, the internet came. Yeah, about. no. Well, that that's exactly what I'm trying to uh, save in terms of uh, in terms of other people because the internet's coming for everybody. Uh, so, uh, you know, w- what advice, given your own experience, 
They say nobody appreciates the power of a flame more than a man who's been burned. Given your own experience, if someone mm-hmm. is in uh, the, uh, is in your shoes today, what advice would you give them about how they can avoid your fate? Yes, uh, one word of advice I can say definitely worked and helped me survive is to offer service. Service. That other people don't. A lot of people can sell you something, but many people can't service, repair, and fix things. Yeah, well, that's good. That's, that's good. Where I excelled. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people hitting that service, uh, that service thread. But what specifically, right? So we got customer service. We got the Matt Blaze price match. I love this hot chocolate idea. I love the added value of wrapping, which is something that is very challenging, which you know an online retailer or a place like Walmart's not going to offer. What else? These are good. These are good. Uh, I'd like to hear some new ones, though. 800-848-9222. Jimmy in Parkway. Hello, Jimmy. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, reinvest, reinvest in your community. Uh, sponsor a little league team, uh, golf outings, that kind of stuff, and uh, that'll keep the property taxes in down in town and keep from everybody from leaving. Re- so, give me an example of how you would reinvest in the community, like sponsor a local little league team or something. Correct. Uh, golf outings. Uh, your local wrestling team a football team yeah, beyond think, the uh, that's a great idea that's a great idea i like that a lot jimmy that's a good one and obviously you might do it might vary depending on you know what i'll i, I will and this may sound self-serving you know what i would suggest to a lot of small businesses local radio advertising i really do think that that is a great way because people that listen to local radio are engaged in the community and they are uh, the kind of people that would shop in a local neighborhood store. If you're interested in advertising, by the way, on um, on any of the radio stations that you're hearing me on, uh, email me. I'll connect you with our salespeople, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, let me say hello to Jeffrey in Queens. Hello, Jeffrey. Hey, Frank. The last caller kind of stole my thunder, but I'll just say it real fast. It's just letting you testimony to that one point, which is not what you're asking for, but it's it's my point why I, why I would – how I, I being sixty five, I lived through the era where you had to do a whole song and dance if you wanted to return something, right? I did that for fifteen years of my life, and then for fifteen or twenty more years, returning was a piece of cake. Period. Yeah, no, I, I mean I, I agree with you. Thank you, Jeffrey. I want to uh, maybe we'll continue this conversation when I come back from Mexico. Email me if you have other ideas, because I think this is an important discussion to have. We're going to do the $1,000 Minute in just a moment. If you you think you have what it takes to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 days, then uh, give me a call and be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And then Brian Kilmeade will join me in just a moment. Uh, We'll tell you about what he's doing in New Jersey tomorrow. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade in just a moment. He is going to be appearing in uh, Newark, New Jersey tomorrow. I'm not sure if there are still tickets available. We'll ask him in just a moment. But uh, if, uh, if there are, you should absolutely avail yourself of them because he is one of the greatest people to see live and in person. All right. Without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Oh, boy. This is going to be one for the book. Steve in Manhattan. Hello. Steve? Oh, actually, Steve's not the contestant. Sorry. Uh, it is Anne in Japan, New York. Hello, Anne. Hello there. Uh, Anne, are you familiar with this uh, contest? Yes, I am. Great. So we can get started if you're ready. Fine. Name a newspaper in New York. New York Times. What worldwide soccer competition is going on right now? World Cup. Where does Santa Claus live? North Pole. What country will I be traveling to tomorrow? Mexico. What Texas football team defeated the Giants on Thanksgiving Day? Oh, God. Texas football team. Dallas. Who was the first American woman in space? Sally Ride. Who is the youngest Academy Award winner of all time? Uh, Her father is also... Sam O'Neill. That's right. What year did MTV launch? 1991. Ah, no, you were doing so well. 1981. 1981. Oh, you, um, you're doing great, though, and you got seven correct. Uh, MTV was 1981. I'm going to put you on hold and give um, give Kenneth your information. By the way, that guy that won a week or two ago, I was copied on an email, and they sent him the tracking information for his money. So he's probably with his money right now, dancing around like Scrooge McDuck, diving into just a pool of coins. Somebody that knows exactly what that's like uh, because he has sold so many books. He's got to be a multimillionaire many times over. Is uh, New York Times bestselling author, the co-anchor of Fox and Friends, nationally syndicated radio talk show host, and somebody who's appearing in New Jersey, uh, and that is my friend Brian Kilmeade. Brian, it is great to talk with you again. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I did, Frank. What about you? Wonderful. Uh, it was. Uh, it was uh, absolutely. Great. Uh, so, big question everyone's asking. Still tickets available uh, tomorrow night? Yeah, we've got a, cu- a couple of VIP tickets, some back row. We're almost sold out. And I just, uh, Joe Piscopo was telling me uh, offline, I'm name dropping with your former boss. <laughs> and he was telling me what a great facility is at the Performing Arts Center. So now I can't wait to get there. I, I am, I do have some people coming from Long Island on a Friday, and they are fearing the traffic. They should leave now. They <laughs> <laughs> should. I, I just said they said, well, can I go to work? I'm like, uh, I don't know. Can you do a half day? Because it uh, everything starts. Uh, the VIP stuff starts at six. The show starts at eight, and we stream on Fox Nation at eight thirty. So it's going to be an entire 
uh, production. So it's going to be pretty cool. So tell people what they're in store for if they come out to Jersey to see you tomorrow. What, what are they? Oh, number be? one, I got I, uh, Carly Shimkus, who used to work with I Michelle, that used mm. to air on this network. Uh, she's going to be joining me, and uh, Rachel Campo Stuffy and Pete Hegseth are going to be joining on stage. What I try to do is take a lot of the issues that are going on in the country, whack them in the history stories uh, that they've been able to write. People seem to embrace. Along with uh, how my career started, uh, just as a as a, a below average Division two soccer player uh, on Long Island, and how it helped me uh, get to where I am right now, and hopefully stay there. And it's just a lot of fun on stage. I've done it about twenty times across the country, and now instead of running in some slick videos, we're reenacting some great moments in history and having fun with it. And the audience seems to like it. In the middle of this, Frank, we could start with a war in history, tearing down statues and uh, deciding we have to rewrite history books or not talk about history at all. So it went from wouldn't it be nice to have a night out? And it's fun. Pat O'Rourke, an outstanding comedian, will open up for 20 minutes and we have fun. But now I feel like I got to push back with facts on our past. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you see uh, Abraham Lincoln being defaced and spray-painted colonizer. There's an, a lot of uh, pushback needed. Are, is a lot of the focus in terms of the history portion of the talk going to be on Frederick Douglass and his relationship with Lincoln? Or are you going to well, uh, go into a lot of the other areas of history that you've explored before, the Barbary Pirates? Yeah. Uh, George Washington and so forth. You know, you, you know the the President Freedom Fighters out on paperback, and I added some of the news when they tried to take down the Emancipation Monument in, in Lincoln Park in Washington that Douglas actually was asked to dedicate to Lincoln, uh, was actually financed by freed slaves. They wanted to do something nice. They designed it. They commissioned it. And they tried to rip it down two years ago. So I, I put that in there. And, they, and also, if people get our signal in Rochester, New York, that's where Frederick Douglass spent most of his free life. They ripped two of his statues out of the ground. Uh, why They should put up two more if you're unhappy with race relations mm-hmm. in America. So I just put that in and just talked about how these, these historic uh, moments are under attack. So I talk about all of it. And what everyone can relate to is George Washington's Secret Six that's listening to us because everything happened in our area. They formed a spy ring, top secret till 1930. We're still finding out different things they did during the Revolutionary War. You had a farmer, uh, you had a printer, which is a journalist, uh, a socialite, three, agent 355. You have a, a bartender and a, a longshoreman who worked for four, out, four years behind enemy lines, which was New York and Long Island. And then I go to Thomas Jefferson, Tripoli Pirates, the first war on terror. Andrew Jackson, the miracle of New Orleans, the biggest victory, made military victory we've ever had. Biggest upset maybe in military history, beat the number one army in the world in about 45 minutes how it happened, and saved New Orleans. And then Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. Uh, what happened after the Alamo? Everyone knows how bad the Alamo uh, and how inspirational it was, but how devastating it was. But how many people know what happened after mm. and who Sam Houston really is? So I try to put that together in a conversational form and then intrigue people with what's coming up next with great leaders in our past and who's, who's maybe on deck. Have you given any thought, and I'm sure this is a question you've been asked many times, the the people that you've written about, Andrew Jackson, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, have you given any thought to what modern-day political leaders most closely parallel any of those great figures from the past that you've studied? Well, a couple of things. Uh, the question is, too, is uh, if you look back in American history, early on, you know, the the brain trust, the founding fathers got elected a lot. You know, Monroe and Madison and, and Washington and, and Jefferson got it, understand it. 
But the next generation came out of nowhere. I mean, Lincoln comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson comes out of nowhere. You, you know, you see these people in our past that just seem to get in, in our pivotal moments. They rise up. And I think that guys like, you know, Ron DeSantis, whether you're Republican or Democrat, the guy has no political connections. He's from Florida, played baseball in college. You know, the guy was a was a Ivy League lawyer and says, I'm going to join the army. Next thing you know, he's the number one governor in the country. And they're talking about he's going to be president. And when you look at Jackson, Jackson was a self-made uh, success story. An outsider, there are so many similarities to Trump. It's it's really uncanny. Now, he had nothing. Trump was born, obviously, with uh, a million – with a family was extremely hardworking dad, but he was, he was very – Sure, he was well uh, to Very do. well off. Yeah. So – I, I see a uh, I see a lot of of rags to riches stories, and those, those are the ones I'm most encouraged by. I, I'm not intrigued by the the Joe Biden legacy, the Mitch McConnell who spent their entire life in politics. That's really not the people that fuel this country. They come in, they come out, they go in, they achieve success, and they leave. They don't want the fame and acclaim. And uh, people are upset about George Bush today. I'm not. I mean, he was born with money, got it, and he had privilege. He understands it. His name brought responsibility. This guy got in and got out. It's not Barack Obama hanging out in Washington, D.C., still wielding influence. Now, Jackson also wielded influence. They could say that when Jackson was done, he was more, in many ways, the more powerful uh, than when he was actually president because all these guys would come through with the hermitage and say, you know, bless me, Mr. President, give me the political power to go run for office. And a lot of the people that hung out in his porch became president. I understand that. But I think that, you know, to say that these anybody out there is worthy of our founding fathers is is a, a leap. But I would say that my goal, if, if there's a goal, is get the most talented mm. people in our country to go serve in political office and stop tearing them down with political scandals and financial investigations that make it impossible and make it um, impossible for anyone with a family and a reputation to run. Well, yeah, one can only guess how history will record uh, President Kanye West's tenure uh, 30, 40, 50 right. years from and now. And who's going to be his running mate. Ex- exactly, exactly. Right. Uh, Brian, uh, if people want tickets Friday in New Jersey, what's the best way for them to get them? Just go to briankillme.com and just click on, uh, you know, there's, there's not many, but there's a few VIP mm-hmm. things where we talked before. Uh, and then some things to do after. And it'll just bring it to the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, and they could take it from there. Yeah. Uh, you did a very interesting interview with Herschel Walker uh, just yesterday on Fox and Friends where you were talking about the Georgia runoff. If people How do you feel about if, President Obama coming into this situation where he just keeps saying over and over again, Herschel's not ready? Well, he's coming out because he knows Herschel is ready. And, you know, Obama is an actor. That's where uh, Senator Warnock is getting most of his money from, is Hollywood. You know, he's thinking that they can, they can buy this seat. But I want them to know that Georgia is not for sale. And I'm here to win this seat through getting more votes. I think that's the reason the turnout has got them nervous. And that's the reason Obama is coming back out, because people are turning out to have their voices heard and their vote counted. Give me your prediction on how you think this runoff election in Georgia turns out. Well, their internals say it's a dead heat. Uh, but they are being outraised seriously. But what was brought up to us yesterday is, listen, you know, you can have more money, but what do you get? Ralph Reed, who's helping Herschel a lot, he said, there's no place to buy it anymore. People in Georgia just are, you know, they're not looking for a new slick ad. So he's getting huge crowds. And they're trying everything, carpetbagger, uh, 
mental, mentally ill, whatever they want to bring up about Herschel Walker, the abortion issue is a bad one for him, obviously. Uh, I don't know what the truth is there, but the fact that it was brought up. Mm-hmm. But my, my feeling is that, that Georgians, they have to understand that it is not it, it is not a lost cause. Huge difference, 50-50 and 51-49. And I think when Georgians realize that, they lean more right than left. And I'll say this, Frank, everyone listening, you should be offended of what happened a year ago when Joe Biden came out and said Jim Crow 2.0. The turnout in Georgia is unbelievable already. It is no problem. No one's passing out because they couldn't get water on the line. No, there's nobody being forced out because of the color of their skin. The Meanwhile, the Hollywood pulled out. The baseball all-star game pulled out. Governor Kemp was called a racist. And then they turned around and put him in by nine points. And I think Kemp's get-out-the-vote team is the best hope Herschel has. And also, he's a very sincere guy. He would do a great job. Uh, and uh, Warnock is hiding a lot. So my feeling is it's, it's, it's closer to a dead heat. Don't watch CNN and think you're getting an accurate for, uh, forum because all they do is try to tear the guy down. All right, Brian, before we let you go, a lot of people in our audience really look forward to our weekly conversation. And it occurred to me a couple of weeks ago that the one thing that we're missing in this segment is a clever name for our weekly conversation here. So we actually did a segment where we solicited Caller input on what this segment should be called. And a lot of people offer, I think there were about 30 or 40 different suggestions, and I'll email them to you. But some people said it should be killing it with kill meat. Some people said bro talk with Brian. Some (laughs) people said clubbing with kill meat, babble with Brian, conversation with kill meat, chilling with chill meat, killing meat softly. Brian's bringing it, or Brian brings it. Brian's beat, the kill meat connection. Do you have a favorite for what you would like these little weekly chats to be called? I, I just think your name has got to be in it. I think it's too much me. I think it's got to be some type of combination. I don't know if it's, it exists yet, but I'm going to need some time to work on it. <laughs> all right, all right. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll both work on it collectively and individually, and then we'll have a clever little right. open for this. We'll get the production team working on it. I'm going to put together a board. About all volunteers, <laughs> sponsored by some type of corporate corporation. That's uh, right. That's and, right. And uh, to work on this, um, and by next week we're going to do it, and then there'll be a jingle. Exactly. That's what I'm waiting for. Right. That that <laughs> this segment's already highly rated. Forget about it. that'll put us in another stratosphere. Uh, Brian, I'm sorry that I'm going to be in Mexico and I have to miss this tomorrow. I, in all sincerity, I have uh, seen your presentations many times in New York and uh, in Atlantic City and and elsewhere. And uh, people may think you're great on radio or great on television or enjoy the printed page. You were born uh, to give live stage presentations. (laughs) You have such a stage presence. I don't know if it's from your days doing stand-up comedy, but if people haven't seen you, I do hope they will uh, check you out in uh, Newark tomorrow. And again, VIP tickets available, BrianKillMead.com. Good luck tomorrow. Uh, Frank, thanks so much for your support, and uh, and I'm, I'm sorry to miss you, but I'm glad people are getting married again. Exactly. We didn't get married exactly. for two years, so we got to make exactly. up for it. You are on my postcard list, so expect a postcard. All right, fantastic. Uh, I haven't had a postcard since 1978, <laughs> so it'll be great, Frank. Go get them. If, if I am kidnapped in Mexico, expect to hear from the kidnappers. I so. cannot. That'll be great. <laughs> I'm not coming for you. It's too dangerous. <laughs> Think of the great Fox and Friends segment, though. It'd, right. it'd be, it'd be sad. All right, Brian, thanks again. Go get it, Frank. All right, thank you. If you want to comment, we, we didn't get to do 15 Seconds of Fame yesterday, so we're going to do an extended 
15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Before we get to uh, 15 seconds of fame, I just want to play this for you. I had this on my list of uh, subjects for for Brian, but I I know he's had a busy couple of days and uh, a busy day ahead of him. And I, um, because he's a big soccer fan, and I'm sure he's wrapped up in this World Cup fever with the USA soccer team. One thing uh, that I actually was exposed to on his Twitter that uh, I thought was really interesting is Tyler Adams the captain of the U.S. men's national team showed a great deal of class in how he was, how he responded to a question from, I believe it was an Iranian journalist, when he was told that he had been mispronouncing the country's name. And uh, I thought it was a really great display of class sportsmanship and of course this Iranian journalist tried to put the United States on the defensive by talking about how there's all sorts of discrimination in the United States listen to this this is the captain of the US men's national team Tyler Adams you say you support the Iranian people but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong our country is named Iran not Iran please once and for all let's get this clear second of all um, are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders. And uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past few years. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, Yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, You know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. I grew up in a, in a white family with an obviously an African-American heritage and background as well. So um, I had a little bit of uh, different cultures, and I, I was very very easily able to assimilate in different different cultures. So, um, you know, not everyone has that, that ease and uh, the ability to do that, and obviously it takes longest to understand. And through education, I think it's, 
it's super important. Like you just educated me now on the pronunciation of, of your country. So, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a process. I think as, as long as you see progress, uh, that's the most important thing. I thought that was a really classy response. And uh, he apologized right away. He didn't, um, you know, dig in his heels on Iran. And he also didn't rush for the opportunity to bury America on an international stage. I thought that was nice. But people should know. That drives me crazy, too. And I'm not even Iranian. It is Iran. It's not Iran. It's Iran. You know, it's one thing to pronounce um, Nova Scotia a certain way. But come on. It's Iran. All right. Without further ado, it's time for other side of midnight this is 15 seconds of fame neil cheek frank you gotta buy your own milk what a poor job of training your staff i bet avery buys curtis milk and washes his car to boot steve all right if they're gonna tell the story of america you gotta tell everything that goes in on in this country not just the left wing's version and does Disco Duck go Christmas shopping? And I always thought Santa Claus took care of all the gifts. And, of course, folks, go Buchanan, go. Go Buchanan, go. go. Chill out. Fred. Hey, Frank, good luck in Mexico. But be careful. I hear this Montezuma fella may be a little vengeful. <laughs> Mike. Good morning, Frank. Frank, two things you should have in your pocket when you fly. One is a small flashlight in case the lights go out and you need to find your way in the dark. And the other is a spool of dental floss. Cheech. Globalism is alive and well. What is happening to Donald Trump is what happened to Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 50s. Wake up, America. Mark. Roger. National Online Small Business Association. Keep membership fees, and all the members do everything your caller suggested, and then Uber expands and to do all the deliveries and then compete with all the big guys there. Troy. Invest in, uh, in Kraft Heinz, McDonald's, and Coca-Cola. You'll be glad you did. Raji. Indeed. Since the WABC merchandise is to advertise and boost listenership, why not give away the outerweight for free? Ray. Happy belated to Carmine birthday. Have safe travels. Did the odd couple make the list, Frank? Yes. Joe. Hey, Frank. Then they should spell it I-R-O-N, not I-R-A-N, and finally, E. Frank. Yes, uh, Eric Adams complains that there are spirits in Gracie Mansion pushing things. How about the uh, new federal warden that might come into Rikers Island pushing him out of office? All right, E. Frank, well said. I am off to uh, get my laptop repaired. Rumor has it O.B. Murray is on the way with screwdrivers. Then I'm going to drop off this laptop, try and get my data off of it, and then off to Mexico. Frank Morano, good day.